here we are again, Jacob Hansen, Bill Real. Uh, we are doing, uh, at least now we're in the second one, so I think we can say we're doing a series called Honest Conversations About Faith uh, with uh, the person there on the screen with me, Jacob Hansen and myself, Bill Real. This will be the second session that we've done. Uh, the first one we did was on morality. I would uh, encourage people to go back and check that out. Uh, I thought it was a great conversation off the air. I was talking to you and saying that, you know, I, I think you're very intelligent, very articulate. I, I felt like we both had a chance to share our points of view. And I felt like the audience had the opportunity to to listen to those and to weigh those kind of against each other and for us to better know kind of where the other stood. So here we are in session two, where we're going to talk about uh, faith crises. And uh, you brought this topic up. It's a topic I'm obviously I deeply impassioned about. I've read numerous books outside of Mormonism on the topic and studied lots of uh, experts in this field of kind of cognitive development and what's going on. You know, the easiest one is James Fowler in Stages of Faith, but Fowler is really just looking at it from a religious aspect. And there are other folks, uh, Robert Gulich and Janet Hagberg, uh, Margaret Placentra Johnson, Robert Keeley is another one, and Thomas McConkie within Mormonism. Uh, but looking at kind of how the brain changes as we enter adulthood and beyond and what is really going on inside those mental processes that cause us to think about our religious beliefs differently and for some folks to have a faith crisis. And so I'll turn the time over to you, Jacob. You can give any um, introduction again that you'd want to give. Uh, and then I'd like you, and maybe give me a minute just to say something in terms of introduction. And then I'd like you to opening up the topic by, uh, because you presented this topic as something that wanted to, that you wanted to cover. And you said it when you typed out like how you, what, what it was you wanted to cover. You said like faith crises, what they are and, and whatever it is, it's not exactly what people think it is. Something along those lines. I'm, I'm adding way too many words, but something along <laughs> those lines. And I'm really curious uh, what that is so that we can sort of begin then to dive into it. So I'll turn the time over to you. Yeah, well, thanks, Bill. I, I also enjoyed that uh, that first conversation, and uh, and thanks for you know for the for the compliment. I appreciate that. Um, as far as the um, subject today on on faith crisis, so this is something that is very near and dear to me. Um, so I'm one of eight siblings, and uh, big Latter Day Saint family, and I'm the only one who's still active in the church. Um, so I've had a front row seat to people leaving uh, the faith. And it's funny because it's actually my own story that kind of, uh, I, I went about it a lot different than a lot of other people. Um, as when I went through, I, I don't, I don't ever say that I went through a faith crisis per se, but what I do say to people is that I went through what I call a faith remodeling. And what it is, is essentially my, um, when I got home from my mission, my brother had left the church. But it was interesting when I, and he was kind of the first one to leave. And I looked up a lot to my brother. He had served a mission in Argentina like I did, uh, really looked up to him. So when I came home to my brother, actually, of the three men who kind of influenced me to go on my mission, two of the three of them had left by the time that I got home. And so that was a big deal for me. And so I come home and I'm confronted with sort of this, okay, you know, arguments against the church, kind of the stuff that you're saying. This is back in like 2008. And what had happened is my brother, he didn't leave the church in kind of the typical way that most people do. It's like, oh, you know, I found out about things in church history and that's why I'm leaving the faith. Um, instead, what it was, was that he had deconstructed faith 
more generally, he'd become an atheist. And he began to talk to me about sort of the atheist arguments. He, you know, had read the God delusion and, you know, was very much into the Sam Harris, uh, Richard Dawkins kind of late 2000s uh, wave of, of that sort of thing. And so I didn't start my quote unquote faith remodeling by really examining Mormonism. I went far deeper than that. I went right to the roots, right to the, you know, is it in any way coherent to believe in God? And I began to explore the nature of the questions around God and if God really existed and if there's good reason to believe in God. And I came to the conclusion that there were. And then from there, I began to look at, you know, okay, well, if there's a God, is there a reason, are there good reasons to believe that Jesus Christ, that story in the New Testament is, is plausible or, or is what I would believe in? And I came to the conclusion that yes. It, it is, I, I think, the best explanation for God. And what I ended up doing was I ended up realizing that there's this anatomy of belief that began to develop, where I began to understand the nature of my belief system, okay? And if I, I'd share some slides with you. If you might pull up a, a, one of the slides that I think kind of demonstrates this. Um, if you go to slide number two, um, this slide talks about kind of this structure as I see it, right? I, I look at it at three different levels of conversation. Okay. And really, um, I, well, let me, let me do it this way. Well, actually I'll, I'll explain this first. The level one conversation is the most basic conversation of all. It's the conversation about just the nature of reality itself. Right. And if in that conversation, you come to the conclusion that there is a God or something, some sort of a higher power, something behind the universe and reality that moves you to the level two conversation where you're then having a conversation about the nature of God, but you don't get to the level two conversation unless you had the level one conversation and arrived at the conclusion that there is a God. Otherwise, the level two conversation doesn't make any sense. And then from there, if you arrive at the nature of God being that this Jesus Christ story is the one that you ascribe to as the, the best explanation for God in the world, well, then you're moving up to this sort of level three conversation. And this is the level of conversation that Mormonism exists in. It's a conversation about the nature of Jesus Christ. Mormonism fits within a broader context of Christianity. And it is a specific narrative about what Jesus Christ is doing. Now, what I found, which was interesting, is that most people who leave the church they don't leave the church and then become Catholics or leave the church and then become Baptists. They generally leave the church and become atheists. And I was confused by this because, and, and usually it was over issues with the restoration, right? Like Joseph Smith wasn't a prophet and therefore Jesus was not the Christ. And I couldn't help but be like, wait a minute here. <laughs> that Those are independent things, right? Like, you, you don't have to deconstruct both of those, but they did. And then they deconstructed God as well. And so I began to realize, wait a minute here. We talk about, quote unquote, the shelf breaking, but I don't think we talk much about what the shelf is built on. Like the shelf exists on the premise that there is a God and that Jesus Christ was the savior of the world. And so I kind of find it, unusual because in my mind, if I were to leave Mormonism, let's say that you, Bill, convinced me that Joseph Smith was not a prophet. He was a liar. I wouldn't lose my Christianity. 
because my belief in Jesus is totally separate from my testimony of Jesus uh, or of Joseph Smith as a prophet. And and I would even say, even if I lost my faith, that the Jesus Christ story was there, I have independent reasons that I would believe in God. And so a faith crisis, as I'm seeing it, as most people are experiencing, and this is what I mean why it isn't, it isn't like, it isn't really about Mormonism per se. Okay. It's about a loss in faith generally, because we live in a society that has in many ways secularized to the degree that it's hostile towards the very idea of, of any sort of a belief in a higher power. And so people, and then there's this, this sort of deconstruction attitude that people have, and it breaks all this stuff down. And so if, you know, what, what, what's, and, and this isn't a small deal. Like this is the other thing I want to say, like those who go through the dark night of the soul and that are truly torn to pieces by, by a faith crisis, like I, I don't say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. I'm like, no, it's a bigger deal than, than like anyone is even telling you. Cause what you've done is you've taken the entire lens through which you see the world and not just the Mormon lens. I'm talking about the Christian lens and the theist lens. And you start to go, you know, what does any of this mean? And now all of a sudden you're trying to live your life and you're trying to, uh, and whether this is conscious or subconscious, you're trying to ground your values. You're trying to ground kind of what you think life is all about. And the lens that you had to look through it is totally broken. And so the psychological effect of not having a narrative to support the meaning of your life as you sink into nihilism is just unbelievably difficult for a person. And if you just continue to deconstruct, you're never going to like, you're not going to relieve that feeling. <laughs> you're only going to make it worse. At some point you have to stop the deconstruction and actually build something to live your life on. Right. And so I, I guess just to frame the initial conversation is a faith crisis as I see it isn't so much about Mormonism. It's something far deeper. And I think when we get caught in the fact that we think that this is a quote-unquote Mormon thing, maybe we're missing what's actually going on and we're having a harder time actually finding relief to that dark night in the soul because we're not reconstructing anything. And at some point you have to reconstruct something. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I actually understand your point of view really well, and that was super helpful. Um, this becomes difficult because my framing for everything you said is completely different. So I'm going to throw, we'll just kind of go back and forth, I guess, maybe with some slides. Uh, let me throw one up. So I don't frame this in terms of uh, the pyramid you had. And I recognize, by the way, I agree with you, there is risk in deconstructing what you thought was reality and getting closer to what it really is. Again, my, my perspective, getting closer to what it really is in running into nihilism. That That's a real threat. I, I couldn't disagree. I couldn't disagree with that. Like it, it really is real. Some people go that way. I don't think most people go that way, but I do think some do. My framing for this is much different. Um, when I studied Fowler stages of faith, I was really intrigued because it seemed like what Fowler was describing was what I was going through. 
And uh, I started looking beyond Fowler to see if anybody was taking more of a macro view of it. And I ran across a really good book. It's called The uh, Critical Journey by Robert Gulich and Janet Hagberg. Uh, Gulich is now passed away, but Hagberg, uh, she's still alive. They've done a second edition of the book. It's a really great book to lay out. In fact, I can even just put it up here on the screen for folks to see. It's a really great book to lay out how our brain changes in early adulthood and beyond where we start to change the way we think about the world. And one of the uh, preeminent folks in the modern moment who are going into this kind of data is a guy by the name of Ken Wilber, and he calls his stuff spiral dynamics. But Fowler Stages of Faith is just dealing with like the religious deconstruction, exiting black and white thinking, leaving ethnocentricity. And, uh, but it doesn't really take into effect what else is going on in a person's world. And I don't want to put a lot of emphasis on this slide just to show it as kind of the framework I use. The very middle column, uh, which is the widest one, it, it notes that at the very bottom level, we start off as impulsive babies. We, you know, we are hungry, our diaper's a mess, uh, something hurts, we cry. And be we become, we move through these stages. The next one is an opportunist. So we are nice as long as nothing's going to hurt us. But if something's going to hurt us, we're very protective of ourselves. And so we will bend the rules or cheat the system to uh, make sure that we benefit and that we're okay and that we feel safe. And then there's these other stages. We move through uh, being a diplomat or a conformist. This often happens in our younger stages in faith development. But we move into stages where we're the expert or the achiever. We often think that we've arrived in that moment. We think that we figured things out. We've got the answers to things. And what we don't realize is that the science behind cognitive development says there are numerous stages that come after these stages where we are uber confident that we figured things out and we have arrived. And these stages can be, uh, these stages open us up to uh, being much more nuanced, letting go of black and white thinking, changing assumptions, relocating authority from outside authorities into uh, inner authorities. And so when you say, uh, let me let me say first, I think religion, you're right. Religion is a technology that we who are deconstructing and moving towards atheism, we ought to take seriously. Religion is a technology and a vehicle that allows us to pass technology and other tools on too. So for instance, every religion has rituals and some of those rituals call us to focus on how small we are in the world or how big we are in the world. And they help us to get together with our friends and family, our community. Um, we ought not to diminish no matter how unhealthy religion is, and I think it is generally, um, especially once somebody starts to break out of the box. I, I also deeply believe we ought to slow down and consider what things religion was created to pass on from generation to generation in society because there's deep value there. Could we could we just just for a second, well, just for clarity's well, well, sake? Um, oh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sure. I only want to press because you said like five or six things and I want to make sure I address each of them. Otherwise, yeah, no, we'll that's just... fine. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Go ahead. In terms of how I deconstructed, you know, this idea of leaving Mormonism and then letting go of Jesus and then letting go of God. Um, when I started to realize that the Mormon truth claims were all problematic and it doesn't matter which one it is. They all rest on data that 
again, my perspective across the board is more in favor of the critic. And so as I started to realize that Mormonism wasn't what it claimed to be in my, my rational mind, whether rational or not, because obviously there are people who know the data points and there are some who believe, I think most people tend to move towards deconstruction and move in that direction rather than uh, come, run into problems and come back. But there are people who come back and there are people who go like, hey, I saw the problems and they don't bother me enough to do anything to leave. Uh, let me be specific to leave. So um, when I deconstructed Mormonism, I recognized what kinds of things that particular system says in order to make the problems not a big deal. And I recognized that those mechanisms it used weren't real. In other words, uh, Jonathan Streeter's covered this on, on Thoughts and Things and Stuff. He did an article called One weird trick to solve your faith crisis. And he discusses wood tools and steel tools. Um, when I looked at Mormonism and realized it wasn't true, I then went off into Jesus and I read Reza Aslan's Zealot. I read Reza Aslan's God. I read, um, and that was later on, the God one. I read uh, several Bart Ehrman books. And what I realized was that, for instance, the four gospels just can't be made to mesh. They just can't. They're, they're four different authors with four different agendas. And if I try to take just a nativity story from um, Matthew and Luke, I can't make them collaborate each other. It, it, you have to really stretch the mind. And so I use the same tools I use to deconstruct Mormonism to deconstruct uh, Christianity. And I love Jesus. Even after I let go of Jesus as a literal Messiah, I went on to do the uh, the podcast, uh, Christ of Faith, uh, the Mythical Jesus podcast. It's at ChristofFaith.org. And, and I went into the Jesus stories, deeply appreciative. And still to this day, I think of Jesus in my top 20 of figures who are nudging me into, as I got on the screen here, these deeper stages of development. Um, and, and then I left, you know, I left Christ uh, because I couldn't make the story mesh. I just no longer believed Jesus was... Um, the Messiah in the literal sense, I thought he was a good example. The story of Jesus, the Christ figure was a good example to look to, to uh, recognize what a deeper stage of development, development might look like and to come back trying to nudge myself in that direction. But once I let go of Jesus, then I went to God and I started reading things like Joseph Campbell and the power of myth, uh, Sapiens by Yuval Harari, which we mentioned last time. And I just realized that human beings, in order to collaborate and be cohesive as a larger and larger tribe, had to create significant myth stories. And those myth stories had to locate the authority for the tribe outside of it. That way you've got the fair and ultimate rule maker. And once I saw what was going on, and I could see it in a thousand religions before Christianity, and I could see the overlap in the ideas that Jesus was a Christ figure, and there were other Christ figures who had uh, many of the same overlapping uh, traits, characteristics, experiences. Um, and then recognizing like all religions have created a God, and God is always uh, favoring the religion, whichever one you pick that you're in that you believe is true. Mm -hmm. it, it just got to the point where I understood that everything is myth. All of it's myth. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't feel that leaving Mormonism was like this crazy jump to atheism. I felt like I spent years deconstructing all of it. 
And it was really, it's really simple in my head to understand how I got there. And it felt very natural to let go of it little by little. And this framing that I follow what's on the screen very much says the same thing that little by little, you let go of your literal belief and you let go of your outer authorities. And that seems to be the way, the direction that human beings go as their cognitive development changes through adulthood. Okay. Yeah. And, and, you know, fair enough. I, I think one thing I was going to, going to look at is you had mentioned about how the tools that you used to deconstruct uh, Mormonism were the same tools that you then went on to use to deconstruct Christianity and then um, uh, theism itself. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's, so just to, again, create clarity here, I think that's exactly right. The tools that we bring to the table is our epistemology. And I always say to people that epistemology is really where it all starts (laughs) because that's how you're going to decide what is real at all. And if you decide, if, if your epistemological presuppositions that you bring to the table are that only, mate- like, if you adopt a naturalistic materialism as sort of your a priori assumption for the way that you're going to view the world, you're going to come to very different conclusions, and, and it's it's going to completely take down the any any sort of religious faith claims. so that's a straw man because that's not what i was doing at oh, the time I'm not, when I was, I'm not saying i'm not yeah. saying that's what you did necessarily I'm then just, let me just oh, let me ahead. clarify then which is that um i i agree with you that that some people do that but what i'm saying is that i fully believed in mormonism until i didn't and then i fully believed in christ until i didn't and i didn't come to it wanting to explain it away a different way it this, the Christ story in the New Testament isn't doesn't logically uh, collaborate. Each each of the books don't aren't cohesive with the others. And and and, and what I, I'm saying I, is is that there is a but there is an epistemological lens that you're bringing to those stories that is the reason that it doesn't jive for you. Where someone who's bringing a different set of epistemological tools to the story, maybe a Jordan Peterson, for instance, who who doesn't use the same frame that I do, but that as an idealist philosophically sees the world not so much in terms of matter and material in motion, but in terms of ideas and that mind is the most fundamental part of reality. So that my, my only point in saying this isn't necessarily to say anything particular about you. It's just to frame the, the exploration of any sort of a belief system that you're going to develop begins with certain ep- an epistemological model that you bring to the table for how you determine if anything is true at all. And the reality is, is that I'm certain that you and I have a very different sort of epistemology that we bring to the table when it comes to discovering truth and what we consider as valid truth claims. If if the New Testament, let's just take the New Testament for a moment. If the New Testament, the four gospels don't mesh, it, yeah, you can come up with mental ways to work around that. But the trouble is now is everything's internal in your mind that you don't really have anything that's trustable, concrete on paper because uh, the stories aren't going together. And hence, if I if I'm left with if I'm in a courtroom and there are there's a witness on the stand and that witness's testimony contradicts at multiple places, it is rational for me to discount that witness and not to trust the story. And I did the same thing with the New Testament. Like, sure, I come to um, I come to Christianity 
or theism or Mormonism with a different lens than you and probably a different lens in some way than every other human being who walks the planet. But in order to decide what is true, Mormonism suggests, and Christianity to a lesser extent, but Mormonism suggests that I trust my feelings about whether it's true or not. And my feelings have deceived me umpteen times. And I can also demonstrate that, that feelings have uh, deceived the well, leaders would, of the church. I would, I, would, I, I would push back a little bit on that, at least for me personally. I don't look at um, my feelings per se in kind of a shallow sense as the ultimate um, you know, barometer of truth per se. I think it's also, more sophisticated story, than that. And, but also and, the story meshing isn't isn't how you have an ultimate barometer of truth you're right, either. But I, but you, let me, let me do this. I, in order to frame the way that I even approach belief at all. Okay. First of all, I can, we can go and deconstruct everything by showing that no belief system per se doesn't have its air, its, its errors that are in it. Okay. Or, or issues or contradictions, whether that be atheism or, 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 or any other ones where you can make arguments on all different sides. But just to frame the entire conversation, because that's really the thing that I feel like I, if, if people get anything out of this conversation, it's, I, I feel like there's a way to frame what's going on that's important. If, if you would go to the slideshow, I have my, my third slide on that slideshow. So what I want to do is let's just, first of all, recognize that we can drop all of the Mormon stuff. We're just two human beings here, Bill, you and I, all right, we're on this planet. We're alive and we got to figure out like what in the heck is, is going on. And why do and we have I, to figure it out? Well, because you have to live your life. Animals live and animals aren't figuring it out. Why does, I don't understand if we go, like we're all trying to make sense of the world. I agree, but and that's, maybe we don't that's have to mean. figure it out. Most of it, in fact, all of us really aren't going to figure it out. Well, if you want to know what's true about the nature of reality, you can better mm. operate in that reality. Is that is that fair enough to say if we if we no, drop everything? No, because the trouble with that is that the science on the forefront right now is having a debate about whether time and space is even fundamental and whether consciousness or time and space came one before the other. What we see is reality. Now, I'll give an easy example. So so real, real quick, but you, you so you're actually you're actually saying though that you don't believe in seeking truth at all. That no, that's no, no. A valuable, I'm saying, I'm saying that's it's impossible. Enterprise? No, no, no. Uh, because I've spent my life trying to do that. What I'm saying is any I any assumption that you're actually going to arrive at it is absurd. Is that true? Um, the science, the forefront of science says so. That even with but your it, five but, senses, but, but, you're not but, seeing reality as it is. And 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 I would I would actually agree with that. So, mm -hmm. so what my, my, but here's what I'm saying though, is that I don't believe in perfect epistemological certainty about anything. Okay. I don't believe that that exists. Do you, but does it exist? It, it, on a, well, be... Let me, let me put it this way. I don't believe in perfect epistemological certainty by reason. I don't believe you can rationally be certain of anything. Do you okay? think feelings can get you further into what truth is? I believe that feelings play a role, that our emotions and our intuitions play a role in understanding what truth is. Now, there's an entire conversation we could have about yeah. epistemology. And if we want to yeah. have that as the next discussion, I'd be very happy to do so. But that's a very deep topic. And I have a very yeah. particular model on my channel called sure. the, 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 the collective witness model for, for understanding truth. It's a whole 
whole thing. So there's a lot to that. But but what I want to say is this. If someone wants to seek the truth about reality, about the nature of reality, to come to the best approximation of what is true, yeah. okay? And that's mm -hmm. the way I frame it. I don't frame mm -hmm. it as uh, that utilizing reason that you can come to know with perfect certainty. Mm -hmm. I don't believe rationality allows that. What I do believe, though, is that you can come to realize that some propositions are more plausible than others. Correct? Like... Yeah, I, I totally agree that some propositions are more logical or more likely than others. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So as human beings, one of the things that we like in this, as I'm looking at this sort of thing where you and I, Bill, can connect, I think, and have an actual interesting and productive conversation is at level one, because this is the level where we're talking about the, the most fundamental sort of basic things that connect us as two human beings, right? It's not about specifics within Mormon theology, because to even have that conversation about Mormon theology, nothing that I say about Latter-day Saint theology makes any sense unless you accept the presupposition that there's a God and you accept the premise that Jesus Christ was essentially who the New Testament claimed he was. If you don't grant those premises, I agree with you. Nothing in Mormonism makes any sense. But if you do grant those th those two premises, well, then Mormonism has a lot more to say. It, it, it at least can become more plausible, even if you don't think that it is it, that it is true ultimately, because ultimately it's resting on the foundation of Christianity and theism, which you both re which you reject. But if you were to grant, like if you were to say right now, Jesus Christ of the New Testament, like that story is fundamentally true. Well, then that changes the whole dynamic. You know what I mean? Like it changes the nature of the discussion. And so I like to meet people where they are. If you are in atheism, like we can meet there and say, is there anything to be constructed beyond atheism? Right. And so as I'm looking at this, at this diagram that I have here, there's kind of, there, there are binary possibilities. Either there is something we would call a God, some sort of a higher power, some mind or, or something behind the universe, or there is not, right? And you have chosen the there is not category. And sort therefore, what we, well, isn't it binary though? Isn't there either a God or there is not a God? Mm, God, but that depends on how you define God. If you're talking about a conscious being who is separate from all other life as we know it, who is consciously, intentionally outside of all other life directing the affairs of the universe, then no, I wouldn't buy that. But if you said God is this interconnectedness between all of us that started 13.7 billion years ago, and it is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present, because it's everywhere and in all of us and everything, then I can get on board. Yeah, and, and so I, God I is its say, own tricky word. I would definitely say, though, that let's, for the purpose of clarity in this conversation, okay. I'm talking about the former, right? The, okay, so in a that conscious sense, being separate from all of us out there directing the affairs of the universe. Yeah, some sort of, at least some sort of a, of a mind behind the universe, let's just say yeah. in the most basic sense. Yeah. Um, and when you go down the right, that there is no, no transcendent God uh, of, of that type, you end up in this space where for me, it's, you know, most people don't want to end up in nihilism. So they go the route of a secular humanism. And that is ultimately, I would say that's where you arrive. If I were to say, where did you arrive on this map that we're looking at? 
you arrived at secular humanism, and that is essentially the belief structure now that you have adopted, that you utilize to make sense of the world, to orient your behavior, and to do the things that that you do. That is, I don't want to, maybe it's, you won't like it if I say it's a religion, but from, from the perspective of, of a Latter-day Saint or a religious person, we might say that everyone has some sort of a narrative that they use to ground their, their worldview, their life, their values. And for you, it is you want to go out into the world and live a life where you are fulfilled and you want to promote human flourishing to all people. And you do that simply for the sake that it is uh, good in and of itself. Is that correct? Okay. Um, for the most part, I would agree with, yeah, with what you said. Now, if someone comes to the conclusion that there is a God, right, that there is, that they think that the universe is best explained by that, there's really only a couple of options. Either that God in some way interacts with this universe, right, or he does not. If the God does not interact with us in any way, that would be deism. Now, deism, I think, ultimately is no real difference than atheism, because at the end of the day, if there's some sort of a God that created everything and then he went out of the picture, it's sort of like, well, why does he matter, right? <laughs> so I, I'm a theist, meaning I believe that in it, that this higher power interacts in some way with the universe, uh, and, and that leads you into theism, and then there are different camps within theism for how to understand this God. And then within that, there's Christianity. And then within Christianity, there's different interpretations of that. My, my whole point in this, the only reason I'm laying this out isn't necessarily to make the case. Uh, that That's a, we do a whole series on each one of these the whole time for, for why anyone would believe in any of these. But it's just to lay out that all of us have to look at this map because we all ultimately have to live our lives and when you're going to live your life, you have to make choices. You make those choices based on some sort of a value structure. So your value structure, if you want to be feel not feel ridiculous cognitive dissonance about your behavior and your and, and your behavior, you have to both have a value structure and you have to have a narrative that supports that that value structure is more than just the arbitrary whims of of chance. and and that creates, um, and so that's the construction part. If all we do is deconstruct, then you end up in nihilism. And frankly, my my personal perspective is that um, the real interesting conversation has with people, not when I ask, you know, what do you not believe in, but when I ask them, what do they believe in and why? And what I've found is, is that I have a very hard time because... I don't find the idea that there is that there is no God compelling. I, atheism, I don't find it compelling at all. Uh, and then if if and so where and that's where our disagreement is, Bill. You know what I mean? Like so, talking about Mormonism with someone who doesn't even believe in God is sort of like we're so far apart from each other in that conversation. It's much, and I'm not saying you can't have that sort of a conversation, but of course, if you don't believe there's a God, the whole church story, which is a branch of theism and then a branch of Christianity, you know, you're getting way into the weeds. And so none of it will make any sense. And so again, I'm not here trying to necessarily make my case for why I think my map is the right one. But what I'm saying is, is that if a faith crisis is when your whole map has fallen onto the ground, broken into pieces, and then you're stuck trying to figure out, well, where do I go from here? And a lot of people go to secular humanism. 
I think that's probably where most people that leave the church go with that, or they go to what I call spiritualism, which is that they believe in some sort of a God, but it's, it's very loosely defined, no, no real religious, no real rigor to it. And, and that's kind of where they go. And so when people understand what kind of the landscape is of belief, I think it helps them to navigate their faith crisis uh, a lot better. Yeah. So you point to if people keep deconstructing, they're left only with nihilism at the end of the path. And I actually disagree with that. I, I think one other option is absurdism, which I actually am a huge proponent of. Um, the other thing, too, is the idea of nihilism is this idea that nothing matters because you're going to die someday. But there is the present moment and to enjoy the present moment because death is inevitable. We're all going to die. We're all going to experience death. Mm -hmm. um, as you're talking about this framing, this is where we're going to have a lot of trouble because I, I just come from a very different angle to this that that I wouldn't even approach any of this this way. And I wouldn't even see this uh, angle as having merit in the way that I put all this together. So I'm going to throw back up um, because I, I don't know how else to do this. It's going to be a sense of you kind of pushing against me with your framing and I'm going to push against you maybe a little bit with my framing, but they're not really going well, to mash that, it and that, and that And that's fine. I mean, we can, we can ultimately contrast them. I think yeah. the framing that you're going to be putting forward, at least the way that I'm conceptualizing the layout is that you're coming at this from a secular humanist point of view, trying to construct a, like you talk about stages of development, for instance, mm -hmm. like that presupposes that there is some sort of a developmental, like, category that one level of development is better than another and uh, no that no it doesn't um none of these stages are better than another but there is a forward progression you can't skip stages and you will start in a lower stage and uh human beings that are the wisest but, among but, us do move through stages to a higher stage and, and to i can't declassify them as higher and lower but better or worse i absolutely wouldn't ascribe to but do you behave as though people, certain types of behavior of people are, and certain types of stages of development are worse and less healthy than others? I think ego in all of us can have us looking down upon somebody in a lower stage, but uh, a kid, for instance, is in a lower stage and I can't look at a child and say something about their worth you, or state of mind look, is being less than. Would you look at an adult who's acting like a child and being impulsive? Like you have a value structure, Bill, like you, you have a hierarchy of values that some things are better than others. And certainly within a secular humanist framework, you're trying to provide a justification for why your value structure is the way that it is. Because if you, if, if it's all arbitrary and you don't have any value structure at all, well then like, I don't even know, like there's no up, there's no down. There just is what is. No, it, it, you're, you're misrepresenting me. So um, in my point of view, uh, human beings are where they are and we can give people tools and we can give people insights and we can give people things that would nudge them to move into a higher stage. But, so but you said, use the word higher. You're, yeah, you're implying but, but, that, that no, no. some way of being is better than another. I, I'm not, actually. I'm talking about two different things. Again, notice that there are stages at the bottom and there are stages at the top. There are stages higher than other stages, but stages better or worse is a completely different conversation. And so you're, I don't know if, I don't know what the um, obstacle here is for you, but in 
these stages of development, it is absolutely true that children start off at the lower stage. And as they grow older, most children move through certain stages moving up. Most human beings plateau somewhere around the diplomat expert achiever stage. And then there is a much smaller section of human beings who move deep into deeper stages of development. But to say one stage is better than another, again, Thomas McConkie told me uh, at one time that eth the ethnocentric stage uh, saved the human race. And he's probably right in that our ability to work in a tribe uh, rather than work as just families gave us the tools to be able to survive against the obstacles that came. Now, hold on a moment, because the trouble here is going to be as if if I let you say a lot of things and then you don't give me time to kind of lay out some of my data that, points, it's just constantly being pushed back. All right. So let me put another thing up here on the on the screen. Margaret Placentra Johnston, she's the author of Faith Beyond Belief. And, and by the way, I don't mean this offensively. I would highly suggest in order to, because you said you never had a faith crisis, you had a faith remodeling. And I would highly suggest then that on some level, you're self-admitting that you don't really understand this territory. And maybe there's things you do know and things you're sharing today that people absolutely should see as having value. But I'm, I'm suggesting maybe you haven't been through the experience and others have studied faith crises or had them uh, extensively. So Margaret Placentra Johnson on the group dynamics at the ethnocentric stage, for instance, in the faithful stage, identity as part of a certain group is more important than the concept of self as an individual. So if someone were to point out an incongruity in religious tenets, rather than calmly consider both sides of an issue, the faithful person would turn away and might even label the person pointing out the incongruity as evil. If a logical discrepancy regarding religion were to arise for someone at the faithful stage, he or she would not be able to address it because of the difficulty in facing the consequences of an answer that might lead away from the group. Thus, faithful level people either do not even perceive such discrepancies or they dismiss them out of hand for they are not sufficiently individuated to face a life without the support of a religious authority and their group. So I go back to the original framing here. There comes a point where you think you figured it out and you can't really tackle the challenges that are present in your religious belief system that absolutely are so contradictory that they would impose to the rational mind that there's no option on, in terms of literal belief than to let go of it. But because someone doesn't understand the territory of the later stages, the deeper stages of development, their only ability is to dismiss out of hand or ignore completely the concerns that are brought up that point to one system not being the true system. And, and this idea of believing things when there are significant obstacles in the way, because one's uh, uh, acceptance, belonging, um, one's fitting in to their tribal system and that being so important to them, consciously and subconsciously, one doesn't have the ability yet to sense that their system is one system out of a billion systems and they're all made up. And okay. So, so this is what's where I'm coming away from this is you're ultimately, if they're all just made up, it's all myth. Everything's myth. And 
none this, of it. The book is myth. It's a tree cut up into pieces with ink <laughs> on it that we have I, words and language. I, and I understand. And, I, yeah. I understand. But but see, I'm coming back to this kind of a moral relativism, absurdism, all yeah. of that to where what seems to be going on here, Bill, is that there's a rejection of truth to be known and that some like that any of these systems are any better than any other. But you don't behave that way. Like, do you not see the incongruence of someone who says that, oh, well, these are all just different systems. They're all myth. My, I have my myth. You have your myth. But you're out there saying that your myth is better than other people's myths. My myth leads me to treat people with respect and to be accepting of differences no matter what a outer authority in any given place says about that difference. So when when another system has a lower stage of development that runs it. But do you see very... uh, real quick though, but you're, you're, you're just pouring out yeah, that you're no. presupposing that there is a hierarchy of value, that it is mm. better to value and treat people with respect than to not. And I agree with that. Then, then you have to stick with that. So you're wanting to play it both ways. You're wanting to say that, you know what, Bill, your system, which values, uh, acceptance of people, regardless of their race differences, their gender differences, their sexual differences. That's just a, 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 a system that is, you're essentially making up on the whim, but then you're also on the other breath saying, I agree with it. And you can't have it both ways. So yeah, if but, we're, let's, but I'm, let's... I provide, I will provide a basis under which it is certain things are better than other things. Certain things are more morally true than others. And I know this may be getting back into that, some of that morality discussion, but in the terms of a faith crisis, what's happening here is that when you don't construct faith in something that you believe is true or right or moral or whatever, unless you place faith into, into some, let's say, quote unquote, myth, where you've placed your faith in the myth of secular humanism, unless you place your faith somewhere, you're left totally adrift without any sort of something to grab onto because everything is, is morally relative. There is no up, no down. And that from a faith crisis perspective, is incredibly disconcerting to people. And so they have to grab onto something, be it, you know, you, you held up the, the book, you know, that book's myth, that you're grabbing onto that myth and saying, this is a better myth than the myth of Mormonism. And, yeah, and that's, and, and, and so I guess my hope, my, I, I'm not necessarily saying that you're wrong per se. What I'm saying though, is that you're doing this. Everybody does this. We all seek truth that we can that that our view of reality is aligned with some sort of the way reality is both in terms of things physical and in terms of things metaphysical like morality yeah um i, I again i couldn't disagree more again there's things you're saying that are true but you're also saying things that are deeply hinged onto the thing that's true that aren't so you're saying that um this idea that, uh, that morality is just, again, uh, I, I'm picking it. That, and I'm going to stammer here because what is what happens is that you not knowing the territory have started with the assumption that on the other side in those deeper stages of development that people are just winging it and trying to figure things out. And it's not what's happening. So uh, Margaret, again, Margaret Placentra Johnson says non-believers at this stage, and this is the later stages. This is after they've deconstructed. This is after they've let go of outer authorities and they place the authority inside of themselves. 
She says, non-believers at this stage are not crazed in a moral atheist that fundamentalists denounce. In other words, what you think is happening, Jacob, is not what's happening. Oh no, I know it's not. I, I don't think that I don't think people are are crazy she, and things no, like no, that. No, no, she goes I think, further. I think that what they're doing, but, I, but just to, so we don't straw man here. What I'm saying is, is that you, like all of us, you're a human being like mm -hmm. me and everyone else. Yeah. We are all trying to. We don't just deconstruct. We have to construct something, and you are constructing something that you believe is better than Mormonism. And, Amen. And 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 my whole point in that is just that that assumes that that's essentially another belief system by which you're judging other people. And so it isn't that you've abandoned belief system altogether. You're proposing a new belief system that people should place their faith in some new myth about human value and dignity. That is the humanist creed. And that that should be their new way to guide their behavior in the world. And so again, I'm not saying that's wrong. What I'm no, saying you is, said is, you agree with it. Oh, I, I agree that I, I just don't think that humanism actually has legs underneath it to be able to philosophically support its, its, its assertions. Yeah. Um, and so my, so these are the I, just, just to frame it, what's happening is, is that it, it isn't that people become amoral. I, I believe it's impossible to people to be totally amoral. I think people mm -hmm. end up moving to try and create a new belief system in your case, secular humanism to try and justify their worldview. But the thing is, is that that then becomes essentially their religion. They're the in-group people that believe the way that we do. And they're the out-group fundamentalist people who don't, and they're bad and they need to change. And so it's just one group against another. And it seems to me, if we're going to be purely Darwinistic about it, this, these are just power dynamics at play. You're trying to structure power according to the way that you think the world should be. And others are trying to structure the world according to power, according to the way that they want it to be. And in my mind, it's sort of like no one's right, no one's wrong if we're going to adopt the purely sort of atheistic worldview. And so I don't think that leads, at least in my mind, to any sort of a reconciliation of the faith crisis that a person experiences because you're not really left with a map towards truth you're just left with warring tribes who are making up myths and you know don't even have agency in the first place so why is this even you know why is, what's the conversation worth? all the warring tribes of the past almost entirely hinged their violence in religion so let me stop you for a moment. Um, when I was a little kid, we were, you know, most of us were taught to believe in Santa Claus and we all wanted Santa Claus to be real. I stayed up as late as I could. I wanted it to be real. And it's nice to have a worldview where you can hinge your morality or your beliefs to something concrete. That's great. It would be nice if we could do that. But there's also would you, would the you, would you say, could we say that they hint that they they basically hinge their violence and tribalism on their myths? Is that fair to say? Sure, but because isn't it's... that what everyone does always, even right now? Like you you try and justify Total... what you're <clears throat> we that's what we do as human beings. We try and justify our behavior based on some sort of a narrative that we believe grants that behavior moral legitimacy. Yeah. So I'm going to really struggle in this conversation if I don't get the chance to get some of these thoughts out. Sorry, go ahead. That's okay. Um, I, I want this to be balanced. I want to look back and be able to say <clears throat> that we both got a chance to say what we wanted to. So 
it seems really important to you that things are hinged at least in an idea that we think is concrete. Like, you know, whether there is a God or not, at least if we think there is, we can hinge a morality to them. And that gives us some sort of sturdy base to hook on to. And what I'm saying is that um, the things that we believe, whether they're true or not, whether they're comfortable or not, whether they lead to nihilism or at the end of the day, reality is reality and it doesn't choose to be what we want it to be. So at the end of the day, I want to be evidence-based. And what I mean by that is that if I study religion and religion's morality and, and all of those things, and again, we're sort of back into morality and I kind of want to get out of this and be in, in talking about faith crises. But it seems important to you that even if the evidence is superior, and by evidence, I mean the lived results, if people have more respect for each other, if people are more kind to each other, if people are more uh, uh, less discriminatory based on race or sexual orientation or gender, that if the results are good, and, and that could be a whole mess in itself because some people don't believe in God and they do horrible things. Some people believe in God and they do horrible things. Whatever the results are, we ought to give weight to them. And there's no way to just put everybody in one box and go, here's the non-believers and here's what the data says about people who are atheists. And here's the believers and here's what the data says about them. You really got to parse it out and you have to see what specific mechanisms do good or don't do good. And so when I look at what she says here, non-believers at this stage are not the crazed and immoral atheists that fundamentalists denounce. For the most part, they have instead found a source of moral guidance within their own conscience that allows for more flexibility than the rules of their faith group in determining right from wrong. This is not the moral relativism traditional religionists warn against. Rather, it is a function of a higher authority situated within the individual. The moment I stopped <coughs> trusting that Mormonism, and I have to go back to Mormonism, it's the story that we both are either in or came from. If, if I look at Mormonism and I go, wow, believing that those authorities are the right guys and believing that this church is true allowed me to go decades believing that people of color were less valiant in the pre-mortal earth life and that they carried the curse of Cain. It allowed me to think that homosexuality was a choice. The only way I was able to get out of those, what I will call absurd beliefs, that I, for decades, believed inside of me, was to start questioning the authorities of my tribe. Um, she continues here. She says, being governed by the authority of his own conscience. She goes, um, let me go right, go above here. Rather, it is a function of the higher authority situated within the individual. The discerning sensibility that acknowledges that in some situation, traditional rules do not apply. Being governed by the authority of one's own conscience, the rational level person does not need the rules of the church to control his behavior. The moment I placed my authority inside of me, I was able to go look at my church and all other churches and go like, oh, that's why people can be convinced to believe things that cause hurt to other people. It would be nice if there was an ultimate rule giver, but every system has demonstrated to us that it has no good way at getting at that rule giver's rules and interpreting them in a way that they don't years later abandon them 
and essentially without apologizing, reverse their previous beliefs. And you're right. I'm doing the same thing. You're doing the same thing to some extent. You're picking and choosing which parts of Mormonism you follow and are obedient to, and you're picking which parts you set off to the side and disagree with. But I think human beings do better when they're given tools and given the ability to trust their own inner conscience rather than doing groupthink and following somebody who tells them, trust me, I'm obtaining the voice of God. You need not worry about what you're doing. Elder Oaks, for instance, saying that um, if you get a revelation that's different than us, then you can know your revelation is not coming from the right source. And that's ridiculous because we can show Elder Oaks' own theology has turned up to be wrong years later. And at some point, a faith crisis happens because people no longer trust the outer authority voices who claim to speak for God, and they're not seeing that there's any real way in any outer authority to discern truth. And it's not that they have the perfect insights to do it, but that they can do it better. Okay. Um, so first, I the idea of internal authority um, and that kind of ranking as supreme, would you say that your internal moral kind of sentiments is ultimately what should guide a person always? I'm saying that the guru is inside of you. Would you, would, is that good advice to give someone like Hitler per se? Yeah, you, of course there's going to be dysfunctional people. You're always going to have loopholes because again, there's not, there's not any set but, but way. That, but what that does is that, that, that says that there's a mm. standard outside of you of the individual. No, that, I couldn't that, disagree that, more. But, 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 but the thing is, is if yeah. Hitler, ultimately we don't want Hitler to just follow his heart as it were, then that would say that there is something called moral truth that exists outside of the individual that he would need to sort of conform to. Yeah, and we, would, we and, and there's a standard by which we would judge if a person's actions are you know, good. If you embrace sort of the Rousseauian view of the world, that human beings are internal, you know, they're inherently good. And therefore, if you just leave them no. alone and tell them to follow their hearts, that they'll, that they'll, that the world will get better and better. That's one thing. But, but you, we don't, the idea of internal authority, complete internal. And I agree, like, like, I'm not saying that you can't have someone who's a false prophet per se, but what I'm saying is, is that if you have people that are teachers of moral truth or even a consensus of individuals as human beings, that is an authority outside of the individual that is acting as the standard by which a person should be judging their behavior. Does Hitler survive better? Does Hitler get his work across better in a system where everyone is taught to trust the outer authority, a.k.a. Hitler, or what he claims he's doing is God's will? Or is Hitler worse off? Because there's always going to be unhealthy people. That's just part of humanity. Is, is Hitler going to be less likely to pull his system off and his violence and all the things he did if you have a group of people around him who are thought to think for themselves and, and feel empowered to carry out what their inner conscience is telling them? Yeah, I absolutely believe blind obedience is a problem. I don't Which, believe in blind obedience. And I don't believe that and, and and so I if you're railing against blind obedience to authority, I would agree. My whole thing is is that everyone places some trust in some authorities of some kind. Like you've never uh seen uh I don't know Neptune with your you know, you never seen the backside of Neptune. Does Mormonism but, give but, you permission but, to question dogma? 
Certainly. Oh man, go take so, that to well, its logical end. Well, let's 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 just so before we get away, there was another point that you had said. You had said because because maybe there, there's a way to adjudicate this, and that we ought to look at the the results of something, right? Um, and that you said uh, the the results really are what ought to give weight to what's going on. Now, I, if I want science to... says that picking on somebody because they're a different color or it, it leads to somebody hurting themselves. Yeah. Like if, if things lead to people being, having un, uh, less healthy outcomes, then we ought to trust the evidence and make shifts in our society based on that. Okay. Can we go to uh, slide number four on my slideshow? So one of the things that is interesting is, is, you know, you, you, you're, you're helping people to deconstruct their faith mm -hmm. and then, and you know, most of the time this is resulting in atheism. And according to the research, it, you know, First of all, atheists are significantly less happy and have worse outcomes than religious individuals. Uh, like here it talks about in Pew, it says in the U.S., for instance, 36% of actively religious uh, people describe themselves as very happy compared with 25% of the inactively religious and 25% of the unaffiliated. Notable happiness gaps among these groups also exist in Japan, Australia, and Germany. And anyone who's watching, it's a very known thing that levels of life satisfaction for religious individuals are higher than for those with atheism. And then in the U.S. at least, Amongst the religious groups in the United States, Jews and Mormons have the highest well-being of any faith groups examined in the analysis done by Gallup, okay? And people with no religious identity tend to have the lowest overall well-being. So if you're leading people to deconstruction, Bill, and towards atheism, are you actually leading them towards a better outcome? The science and the data would seem to suggest otherwise. and. That's something that, you know, there's a lot of people out there, even atheists, who say, look, I'm not going to really mess with people's religion because at the end of the day, it helps provide social cohesion. It's a useful technology, as you had said. So I'm not going to mess with it. I'm not going to go out there and tell people to deconstruct. And in this case in particular, according to the research, not only are you attacking religious belief, you're attacking the religion in the United States that seems to be producing the highest levels of well-being of any religious group. And so it's like, man, Bill, if there's a target to go after, going after the Mormons who tend to produce so much good outcomes for people uh, by the data, it's like, man, and, and I'm not saying that there aren't things that maybe could be critiqued here and there and things where we go off the rails and I'll critique things that we do uh, as a people and we're not perfect, but like this overall thing that Mormonism is unhealthy when Mormonism produces the highest well-being of any faith group, it's kind of like, whoa, like, is this the right target? Oh, you're, you're muted, Bill. You're muted. Yeah, yeah, no sweat. So, um, the, the trouble is, you're again, you're splitting people into these groups here, and there are, there's a lot of other reasons for why. And and the other thing too is go back to the original framing. How many of these folks actually did deconstruction? You're putting deconstruction effects at the top. That's not really what's going on. You're taking people who go to church, believe in God versus people who don't go to church but believe in God versus people who don't go to church and don't believe in God. And those three groups can be split into lots of different categories. And, and I would argue that folks who spend the time to deconstruct their religious system, uh, namely Mormonism, because that's the one I have experience in, 
we did a survey down here in Southern Utah where we asked uh, folks who had deconstructed Mormonism, whether they were happier or not. And it was like 93% reported being as happy or happier than when they were believing. But I think the same problem occurs with that data that occurs with yours, which is that Mormons are taught to present themselves as happy. And to some degree, my wife and I would tell you that there were times 10 or 15 years ago, we were all in that if you asked us if we were happy, we would have said yes. But now only getting to the other side of things, do I realize the harm that was being done to me and the trauma that was being handed out? And so Mormons tend to want to present themselves as happy because how do we get our neighbors to join the church if we're not? How do we, when we go to church, I put a white shirt and tie on, my wife puts a dress on, we go sit in the pew and we all hold each other and smile. But the reality is that there are really, uh, difficult things going on. And Mormonism rarely gives a place for so, those vulnerable. Mormonism rarely gives a place for those vulnerable conversations to occur. And we're often faking to some degree because we need to present to all the non-members and to those around us. It's called costly signaling. So if Mormonism's working for me, there's a psychological phenomena where, uh, High demand religions require constant costly sing signaling, meaning that I had to expend some sort of effort wearing garments, uh, not drinking coffee, not drinking tea, not doing things the way the world would do them. I'm signaling to those around me that I fit in, that I'm a Mormon as well as anyone else. And it leads to certainly the possibility that when folks go to the Gallup poll and answer questions, that they feel an internal need to frame Mormonism as happier than it is. And until they actually go through a faith crisis, they may not even comprehend the damage that's being done to them in a patriarchy with unhealthy, say, um, uh, boundaries around children and adults. Uh, and, and again, list could go on and on. It, it is very likely that until one gets to the other side, they couldn't even have seen it until then anyway. So, so I just, I don't like this kind of data because there's so much going on here and it's well, easy well, to say like, I win, you lose, but th that's not really what it's telling. And, well, and, and the thing is, is I'm just curious about, you know, what does the data say about those outcomes? And, and, you know, to, to your, let me, let me kind of steel man some things here. So one thing that you're saying is that, you know, Latter-day Saints might kind of overstate how happy they actually are because they need to, they need to do that. Right. And deconstructed Mormons might do the same. And, 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 and fair enough. My my thing is is but then you can also look at objective metrics for well being, things like like, like depression and anti depression drugs, and the rate of sexual abuse in a community. Well, let's 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 talk about let's talk about a few of those. So, but but first okay. of all, and, and and I'll address some of those. So, like from yes. a health perspective, right? Like Latter Day Saints live significantly longer than uh it, it's it's uh is longer better seven seven point one years longer. Yeah. when it comes to health than, than other, other groups, uh, is kind longer of the national better. average is longer, better. Yes. I think living a long life is, is better. Okay. I would say <laughs> maybe. Okay. Um, the other thing is, is that, um, when it comes to kind of community and social relationships, um, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the number of volunteer hours that are given that church members do is, is basically on par with the national average not including all of the church service. So they do all, which is like, it's, it's way higher. Like I can't remember the exact data that I saw on it, but it's, um, 
it's significantly higher than the national average if you include the church service. And if you take away the church service, it's basically on par. And that is those kind of social giving and social involvement in their community mm -hmm. is, is something that Latter-day Saints are, are well known for. Okay. And then you have on top of that, we could go to the metric of financial stability, right? Like this isn't something you can just fake. Um, Latter-day Saints are more likely than the general population to be in the middle class than to be in, in, in lower income levels. Um, there, you know, when it comes to education, uh, Latter-day Saints actually have been shown, which is contrary to other groups, the more education you have in other faiths oftentimes leads to lower levels of religiosity, where in the church, you're actually more likely to be, um, uh, the more education you have, the more likely you are to be active in the church. Um, and then, and then when it comes to things like suicide and, and like depression rates, all that kind of stuff. So one thing that Latter-day Saints do that they, they don't take into the data is the fact that Latter-day Saints don't self-medicate. So if we're not, if we're not drinking, for instance, we're more likely to actually go and get a prescription for our depression where a lot of people just turn to alcohol to treat their depression. Um, but the church like is the one who gives that rule out. So it seems like you're arguing that people might be better. They might be less depressed if they were allowed to drink alcohol. But the other side of the coin no, is that I, as a Mormon, that, you can't drink alcohol. No, that that's not just to be clear on what, what I'm, what my argument is. I'm saying that other people self-medicate instead right. of going to see a doctor to actually get a prescription for something. So there's a lot of depressed people out there that aren't going to a doctor and actually getting any kind of medication to help them with their depression. Yeah. They just turn to alcohol. And that, I don't think that that's, I mean, do you think it's a healthy behavior to turn to alcohol to treat your depression? No, but nor is it a healthy behavior to have as your only option opiates and, uh, a lot of the prescription drugs that are available. Well, I, I hope too. I hope that that isn't seen as the only option by people. Yeah. And then, in, in addition to that, you have. I mean, we all know that part. Postpartum by the way, I self-medicate. I use I use cannabis regularly, and I'm a huge fan of what that does for me. Okay, excellent. Yeah. Um, so, what another thing is is that Latter Day Saint women tend to have more children, and and postpartum depression is just if you have two populations and one of them is having more babies than the other population, you're, you're likely to have higher rates of postpartum depression simply because of the numbers, right? And postpartum depression isn't anyone's fault. It's just something that happens uh, with, with pregnancy. And so would you expect for a population that's having more children to have the same levels of postpartum depression and the medications that go along that, with that as a population that doesn't. Um, who's encouraging them to have lots of children? Well, I, I think the church encourages people to have children as many as they, as they can, The children are seen as a blessing and, uh, Latter-day Saints are encouraged to, to have children. And I think that's a great thing. <laughs> I, I have four the, kids and I yeah. wouldn't give them up. <laughs> I think, I, yeah, I, I, totally. I hear you say that, but I would also want to stand behind every person's individual right to decide how many children they have without any peer pressure from the religious system telling them to multiply and replenish the earth. And hence, lots of people would have made a very different decision about how many children they had and perhaps maybe would have suffered less depression. Now, again, the whole thing is well, you, know, if you people, have kids. If people, if, if I've, I've never heard someone say, man, I wish I didn't have that last child that I have they really I, I wish I would have not that. had any children because I wasn't equipped to do it. 
I was a horrible dad at times and a horrible husband at times because I was overstressed by the number of kids. Again, I love all four of my children. They're amazing. I can't trade you, it back. But you do wish, but you do wish that you didn't have them. You, you, if you go back in time, Jacob, and you make different choices, you have no idea what the outcome of those choices are, right? Like you're living in a different reality. What I'm saying is that my kids incurred a ton of trauma because I wasn't equipped to be a dad of four kids that were back to back to back to back. Uh-huh. And the harm that I did to them and the harm that I did to myself, um, it, it might have been better if I would not have had kids at all. I wasn't equipped. Well, I, I personally am glad that y- your kids are here and I'm glad yeah. that my kids are here. And frankly, yeah. and I will say, I've, I mean, I'm not a perfect parent and we all mess up, but I believe that life is worth it. And I believe that we can learn through these things and, and we can. Life come is worth it together. for some human beings. Some human beings live in absolute misery. Some human beings live in, see, you you get to go like, oh, like 97% of people are good. So let's bring 100 people in and let's not worry about the three that are, you know, bedridden or uh, have difficulties and challenges that they're miserable. I, I, I just think the human experience is really messy. And I'm not a big fan. Um, I'm not a big fan of of just saying like, hey, here's my experience and hence everyone else should uh, go in line with that. Well, and I, I, don't and, think I that's and, true. and the and, and the church's official stance is that it is up to the couple to decide how many children they can have. But, but with children, a lot of pressure. But with a well, lot of pressure. The the there is a culture that values children and to have a family. And I I don't necessarily mm-hmm. see that as a problem if we want to continue our human civilization. Yeah. Um, you have to have at least uh, you have to have more than two children per couple in order to in order to continue the human population and to continue the human race. If you um, don't, the human race, I mean, it's just math. Like if you're only having one child per couple, we eventually go extinct. No, but we could diminish it for a long time and the planet would be better off. Well, that's a, I think that's a separate discussion. We, we, we can talk about that, but okay. well, I guess, hold on. You're oh, go ahead, again, go ahead, yeah. Yeah, you again we're, we're, we're spending a lot of time with you kind of advocating your point of view. That's fine. And um, I'd like to be able to get back into some of the things I wanted to share too. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So for me, faith crises are a matter of in your own head. You can't, you can no longer believe in the things that you used to. And so it's easy in, in Mormonism and in other religions, there's this wood tool known as just have faith, just believe, just choose to believe. But if I said like believe in leprechauns or believe in unicorns, you intrinsically know that you can't get there because you know that it's absurd. Mm-hmm. But when you grow up in a religion and you have this, you're, you're born into it, you're inoculated by it, you sing songs of follow the prophet and, and uh, you have the music and the talks and the lessons, all of it says you're the chosen one in the chosen church and you've got this great destiny ahead. Mm-hmm. And what happens for people is they get to a point where they can't make it work anymore. Like they, they know their systems telling them these things, but they just don't buy it. Um, and so I want to go into a couple other here, little slides. Um, let me put this up. Uh, that's, I mean, that's a different one. Let's go to number th- three or four here. Belief and obedience. Um Robert Keeley on the location of authority. Whether they are teens or adults, folks at the ethnocentric stage find their source of authority for their faith is primarily located outside themselves. I I started off as a child trusting my parents. My parents looked like they had life figured out. What I came to learn over decades 
was that my parents were deeply dysfunctional, but because I was raised in it, I couldn't see it until I had enough experience outside of my home to sense how other humans do life. And the same thing happens in church. When you grow up Mormon, you, you are taught to think of everything that system does as legitimate and right. So when it tells you that gay people are bad, when it tells you that, uh, that women have a certain role that is this way in patriarchy, when, when Mormonism tells you that people of color were cursed, I don't have any ability to challenge that. And I automatically assume that my church is telling me the truth. Folks at the ethnocentric stage find their source of authority, authority for their faith primarily located outside themselves. Some religious leaders who see themselves as having God-given authority over their flock may structure their church in a synthetic conventional mode. This is characterized by conformity to authority and the religious development of personal identity. Any conflicts with one belief are ignored at this stage due to the fear uh, of threat from inconsistencies, depending on their followers to do pretty much what they say. Let me share another one here. On obedience and literalness, the faithful person has a tendency to hold a literal view of God and of scriptural text. His God is external to him and judges his actions. In general, a faithful person is less regulating than those at later stages. So he really needs to follow church rules to the letter. He cannot imagine how anyone could behave with integrity without the threat of punishment, whether by authorities here on earth or by a judgmental father God. The faithful person is pre-critical in that her faith has never been examined in an open-ended objective manner. Perhaps because her preacher has suggested it, the faithful person often holds an ethnocentric worldview where only my church is right. And again, I know Mormonism says, oh, there's truth everywhere. But at the end of the day, it significantly diminishes other churches by saying it's the one. It's the one and only true and living church with which the Lord's well-pleased. And so when folks, for me, Faith crises are a matter of losing your trust in the authorities of your tribe, and that happens when you see people not treated appropriately. I don't trust, nor do many, trust Mormonism to get it right when it comes to treating people uh, fairly. People of color, people, women, uh, LGBT folks. And I think if we dove into those issues, on a large extent, you would agree with me that the church got significant things wrong and that Trusting the outer authorities allowed those false beliefs to be perpetuated generation after generation, and that such indicated that the men at the top who claimed to be the oracles of God seemed to have not enough access to correct major problems in any sort of timely manner when my location of inner authority allowed me to do so much earlier. And so folks who have faith crises are really losing trust in the system they came from and it's a painful moment. You said earlier um, that people who, and I want to, let me find this here. Let me see which one it is. And sorry, I've got a slideshow. I've got yours up here so I can kind of see no, what you've got coming next. People move into the expert state, by the way. I, I, and real, real quick, could I, could I, could I comment just before we, we go on about please. this idea of, of losing trust? Because I agree a hundred percent that is what a faith crisis is. Yeah. But, but my thing is, is that it, it's even bigger than that. You're, sure. you need, you're, how's it like, bigger? The question is, is where do you place your trust at all? Right. Like, and if we're talking about trust, trust is what 
faith when you actually study it out is not just like believing in stuff that, you know, leprechauns and just choose to believe it because you can't do that. But you can place your trust in certain propositions or in certain ideas, right? And so the the thing is, is that what a person needs to figure out isn't that, oh, you know, I, I lost faith in, in leaders. The question then becomes, but where do we place our faith now? Like, where do you place your trust now? And if it is, you already had mentioned that there's a big problem when you try and place all of your trust in your inner authority. That basically makes you the 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 center of everything. And so if but but then that if you can't do that, then that posits that there must be some source of authority outside yourself that no. you should place trust in. It doesn't posit that at all. Um again, if if there is no God, and there very well may not be. There are lots of intelligent people who think there isn't, and there's intelligent people who think there is. By not having, um, by going like, hey, I have my inner authority, but that's that's not going to cut it. There must be an outer authority. That's not real. But but um, but but there's only there's only two sources. I mean, it's a binary thing. There's no, it's inner not. That, I don't live in a binary well, world. Well, well, real quick, real quick though. Sure. I mean, just just logically speaking, there's authority like inner authority, and then there's outside authority. Right, like those are the two options, or is there a third option besides that? No, so no, so individuals choosing how to live their best life ought to be taught to trust their inner authority. The whatever the outer authority is, again, I'm happy to listen to people on all sides who are intelligent, informed, seem to be experts in their area. I'm still going to use my inner authority to weigh which conclusions are the most rational, I, I, which I ones make the most sense. That's good. Yep. And I, so, I, I use the analogy of like the 12 greatest brain surgeons in the world, right? Like if, if I, if they tell me something about my brain cancer, I'm going to place trust in their opinion because I think that they are worthy of that trust. And I'm not just going to go with my inner authority. Now, if, what if, if they're you split? What if there's six and six? Well, then I then I would have less less trust in what they're going to say, and I have to look either into my inner authority and or to other places. But the idea is is that what authority is ultimately when we're talking about authority is essentially it's a witness from someone who we think is credible and worth listening to and giving our trust to. Whether that is our own self that we're saying, look, I can trust my feelings because my feelings lead lead to accurate conclusions or it's trust in what this person has said. Um, I also think in my epistemological model is that you place your trust in, um, we also place our trust in reason, right? That, and, and our own ability Which to Which is reason. also inner authority. Yeah. It's, it's our ability to, to, but if you think that you're stupid and that you're not good at reason and at mm -hmm. rationality, mm -hmm. then you might turn towards someone who you think is, good at rationality and you will place your trust in them right except you're still using your inner authority to decide what is the best route to take and, and so everything well, you just assuming said we have agency to, uh, sorry I sure poke that one. <laughs> but everything you come back to is still says that jacob hansen is still deciding inside of him on which issues he trusts elder oaks on and which issues he trusts mormonism yeah. on and which yeah, issues you trust christianity on I so agree. at the end of the day you actually are in agreement with me that it, the buck stops with your insides, except when a religious entity or system manipulates you in such a way as to say, no, 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 your inner gut is not trustable. Oh, I think I, here's my thing. I, I would agree with you 
in the sense that, yes, ultimately, because we have agency, we ultimately are the one who has to make the decision with, with you know, our, ourselves based on what we know, if we're going to trust this authority or not. Yeah. What Latter-day Saints do is they say, we believe that these people are trustworthy. Let's use a different analogy here. Okay. If the 12 greatest brain surgeons got together totally unanimous and said this certain type of surgery is bad for you and they came and said that and they said look i don't care what you think you need to trust us on this issue i think a person is fine to say yeah we should probably trust those people because they're the 12 greatest brain surgeons now yeah. that doesn't mean you don't have to but but the idea here is, is you don't have to be blind to it. You can choose to say, no, I go against them. But we probably would advise against that because if there are authorities that are worthy of our trust, it is perfectly rational to place your trust in a trustworthy authority. Are you suggesting that the top 15 leaders of the church after the SEC report are worthy of our trust? Yes. Wow. See, I couldn't, I couldn't get there because I look at them. They're not right. They, they're at any given moment, they're wrong about lots of things, but they express their opinion as if they're certain, which then leads members into perpetuating and holding bad ideas for generation after generation. The amount of, again, the SEC report agreed to by the church demonstrates that these leaders did lots of unethical things behind the scenes in order to carry out these shell companies and by their own standard, they've said that folks who commit this degree of financial malfeasance have to repent and are accountable to a church disciplinary court. And so, but Bill, Bill real quick, real, real quick, just to, just to respond to that a little bit. Yeah, that's I, the I'm same. Like that's I'm not the getting same, the chance to talk as much as you. Real, real quick, just just and yeah. I'll, I'll give you the floor here after this. That's the same line of logic that the people say. Well, Fauci was wrong about X, Y, and Z. Therefore, we can't trust scientists anymore. Just no, because, just because that's a bad a source, argument. Just because a source is not infallible, and by the way, I'm mm. not saying that they did anything wrong with the SEC thing. I'm saying what I am saying though is that just because a source is fallible and can be mistaken, does not mean it is not trustworthy and worthy of our serious consideration and trust. I've I've seriously considered them, and and again, we're back on faith crises. Everyone who had a faith crisis on some level lost trust in the thing they had a faith crisis over. Yes, agreed. We we are, um, we're we are discounting people when we act as if the their issues of trust shouldn't be taken seriously. And so when I look should at should we more, take seriously the guys who are the COVID denier people? We should take seriously any issue. Uh, that is important, and we should consider all sides of an issue. And it's only when we consider all sides of an issue are we going to have any ability to be equipped to tackle that issue in a way that's successful. So, it, if you only listen to one side of information, which which one of the you know one system really likes us to do, um, if we only consider one side of information, we're in an echo chamber. And I don't, I'm not a fan of that. I'm saying go take Mormonism's claims and go read them and study them, study the historical context, go look at all the, the things that would need to add up for Mormonism to be true, go see all the things that the church leaders got wrong. The folks who ran into a faith crisis, in doing that, they came to a spot where they said, this doesn't hold up. These guys claim to talk to God, but they don't seem any better at it than my next door neighbor down the street. 
and maybe they're even worse. But what and, about the, but, but do the, but do the, you know, if you're going to claim that the outcomes, I would say, show something very different when it comes to living a life that leads to prosperity and happiness and longer prosperity. life. Prosperity. Hold on. I, I would say, I, I would say that, that, that they, they lead people. And I don't mean just these 15 that are living. I mean, the entire prophetic witness throughout the Judeo-Christian tradition has produced the greatest the greatest thing the world has, the greatest values that the world has, has has come through that system. And so, from a from an outcomes perspective, I say there's something to what the Bible says, something to what Scripture says, something to what the leaders of the church are now saying. Like that's how I arrived from atheism to theism to Christianity to where I am was actually by looking at the outcomes. If we then take that data and go look at the outcomes of other groups, let's go look at the Buddhist. Let's go look at the Hindus. If we find a group whose data is better, now you're ready to jump ship. Absolutely. If you could find me something that is more true yeah, than, that's, more, that's, than, than my own That's than internal own up here. That's, no, there's no, no, no litmus no, test truth, for that. Truth is something that I believe is objective. Mm. And so uh, any, any We wouldn't system, be it was. Truth isn't objective. People are disagreeing all the time like you and I are right now. That... You're making a claim but, it's objective. But, do you make, but you make objective truth claims all the time. Um, I would have to tackle each one of those on their own. There may be... Like you um, would say that racism is wrong objectively. Like, I would say racism is wrong objectively. See, yeah. that's an objective truth claim. So that, that, that presupposes that there is actually an objective truth. Or you can say that the Mormon church, no. like, like Joseph Smith was not a prophet. He did not see God in Jesus Christ. That is an objective truth claim that you're making. So you yeah. believe in objective truth. Yeah, but I, I don't believe you can decide which system has the most objective truth. That's, that's not objective. Can you, can um, you say that Mormonism has less objective truth than secular humanism? Uh, no, but I can say Mormonism gets so much wrong and causes so much harm that it couldn't possibly be true. And that is objectively true, what you just said. Mm, it's my opinion. And But is are any opinions more close to the truth than others? Uh, I can tell you that more systems are further away from goodness and well-being. And is that, I, I won't, is that I won't enter standard? an argument is where that, I have to but, but play by the, your language. Well, I'm just, rules. I'm just, I'm trying yeah. to understand. I'm trying to understand here because if you don't believe that there is any objective truth, you you lose the ability to say that any opinion is better or worse because it, it can't. The cool there's no standard opinions. by which. No, no, that's the cool thing about opinions is we all get to have them, and just because you say that your ideas are based in objective truth doesn't make such true. And in fact, numerous people would oh, disagree with oh, you. And I agree. I agree. Yeah. That just because you say that it's true doesn't mean that it is true. But but yeah. I'm asking a more fundamental question of if there's any truth at all. And and taking this back to the faith crisis thing, that's sort it's of- It's all myth. No, no. There is, no, no. It's, it's all myth. At the end of the day, what I would call truth is what helps us to better treat each other kindly and fairly, to create equity, to create reciprocity and and collaboration and kindness and fairness, but no, it's all myth. So no, there, there isn't any objective truth. This is all chaos. We're all stardust. We're all the universe expressing ourselves as humans for a little while. You, you've, you've made meaning, but no other creature on this planet has done that.
but you behave as though there's moral truth. Like we can say that we don't believe there's any moral truth, but but your behavior, you, you act very much as though there is moral truth and that the and that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has violated that truth. And and again, in the context of a faith crisis, when people are trying to reorient themselves to figure out the way that they're going to live their life, they they need truth. They need something that they can actually believe in and that mm. and, and you're saying that that doesn't exist. Um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm saying you're, I'm saying it doesn't exist, but I'm saying that we all pretend it exists. And on some level we create myth all around us, whether we're religionist or not, we create myth to give some sort of structure or meaning to our lives. And we're all doing the best we can to do that in a way that's effective. Now, how people deem it effective, some systems deem it, deem it effective if it collects $150 billion, regardless of what uh, dishonesty or trauma that causes in the meantime. Other systems deem that uh, it's really about the government system uh, perpetuating, uh, hence uh, dictatorships in places like North Korea and China. Um, and could we say, just to be fair, could we say that an atheism and people go out and they they promote ideas that that maybe lead to worse outcomes for people through atheism, and they promote ideas that then lead people down that route and you know maybe even make money doing it. You know what I mean? Like, is is that, you know, moving in the right direction? Yeah, I don't know that. You're you're tackling this again. You have a full right to come to this conversation with the way you want to frame it. It's just not the way I would frame it. And what you're doing is you're saying because you're saying that we can suppose there's a God or we can suppose there's a Christ, and everything's better if we can just pretend that that's real somehow. Get in our brain. But that's the no, real way I, to do I, things. No, I, I don't. In fact, I and frankly, that uh, if you were to go to that that slide that I had about the the worldview, like for me, it's all about you and me, Bill. We're human beings. Yeah. Okay, we're here. We're on this in this world. And I thought we were going to diverge at the level of like, okay, you believe that there's a God, and that I believe that there isn't. But we're diverging even more fundamentally than that. We're diverging at the level of. There is actually truth out there that we can get to know because there is an objective truth that exists. And therefore, we should both go out and try and discover what is true about reality. But you're here saying, no, there is no truth out there. Um, and it's all a matter of myth and perspective. Is that yeah, the level the of our divergence? Because I, mean, best... I just want to understand our divergence. Yeah, the bet, but again, we're all going to create myth, it's all around us. We're all structured to create meaning. And so we human beings are going to create a myth, whether it's in religion, whether it's out, whether it's in patriotism or nationalism, whether it's in whatever it is, our value systems are based in whatever myths are around us that we place value in. And I'm, I'm simply saying that we all are better off on some level doing that because it does give us human beings. Again, the rest of the creatures in this world seem to get by fine. The trouble is that we're conscious. We have a conscience. Uh, we have consciousness. And what that does is it forces us to make meaning of the world that is around us. And so I'm simply saying that um, we're all going to pretend on some level. And the best pretending we should aim at is the kind of myth that respects all of humanity and gives every human being the best chance to flourish and not to be othered by differences for which one didn't come to um, 
on their own unnaturally and which doesn't cause harm or trauma to others. Okay. Um, and it's one of the things that I think is interesting with people is to, again, you and I obviously have very, very, very different worldviews. And, and I like to try and understand like where that divergence happens. Um, if you could real quick, just on that slideshow that I have on slide number three, I just wanted to pull this up because I, I honestly thought we were going to be at a different place in this. I thought, because like level one, if I were even to go even farther back, if I could go farther to the left on this graph. Did you create this or is this something out there I, I somewhere? I created it. I created so it. So what makes your structure real and true and it's the thing we should base this on? So like how is your perspective better than the experts who have dove into faith crisis and the people who have had one? Well, I'm just framing the nature of reality as I see it and that I believe that it is based on logical necessity. So one of the things is, is but that's almost what I'm saying. It's like you and I, Bill, we diverge even farther to the left of this to where we're even describing if there is a truth. Who creates the territory for the left of this? My, see, my point uh, is what, you've what I'm saying is, is, that, is that the only way for us to have a coherent conversation about the truth is if we believe yeah. that the truth actually exists. And that, and that, and I, that that's different from it being able to be known, but yeah. to believe that there is actually an objective truth. And there is, in my opinion, an object, because there is an objective truth, we can ask the question. In your opinion is, though, but see, that means already that it may not be objective truth. No, no, no. My opinion about objective reality is my description and my witness as to what I believe is real. Okay. But, it, but there's no way to know whether that's actually true. Hence I could why say, lots I could of people say, disagree with your point of view from all kinds of angles. Yes, but Bill, I would say, you know, <laughs> you already said that you would say that there is no God and that you believe that it is that in reality, there is nothing like what I describe as a God. And that is a truth claim that you're making that is contrary to the truth claim that I'm making, right? But the thing is, the only way we can adjudicate that question is if there is truth if there is a right or wrong answer to the question is no there a i think i disagree i think i think what we could do is the two of us could have a conversation on faith crises we could present our best understanding of what's going on there and how to best help people see part of the problem is that we're talking about this inside a mormon perspective and the reality is that people are having faith crises about scientology about methodism about the yeah. amish about hinduism I would and, say I would say they're having even more of those than in Mormonism. Mormonism's attrition rate compared to other religions is actually much smaller. And and whether true or not, I would disagree with you. I don't know the data there. The church won't share its numbers, but whether that's true or not, it has no impact on what's real or what isn't. But see, the thing is, is you're positing that there's a reality out there about what is actually true in relation to that. And so if we're going to talk yeah. about objective truths, my thing is, is that once we get to the idea that there's objective truth, truth demands just by the nature of reality that there either is something that we've described as a God or there isn't, right? And so then we can begin to have the conversation that's in this and graph. And no person could arrive at knowing that. Unless, and even if a, even if an angel or God himself stood before you, there are still explanations for that, which would mean that that's not the reality of what's actually happening. You're right. And at some point you can doubt everything. You can doubt, you can think that we're living in the matrix and the whole how do thing you falls pick, apart. How do you choose what things to doubt and which things to believe? I use a collective witness of five different witnesses. And you invented this collective witness paradigm. 
I've done it based on the actual experiences that I've had in life and that it, you know, I can trust my eyes to a because certain Because it degree. leads you to stay and it led all your siblings to, and, and something other led all your siblings to leave. No, no, this is, I, I think you're, you're missing the point that I'm saying. I'm saying is, is there, I, no, I, do, I don't know that Bill, I am, do we have, sure. do we have tools, Bill, for understanding the truth? Do you believe that? Yeah, but the problem is I already know the conversation's flawed because at the end of the day, the the path that we take to figure all that out leads with you going Mormonism is true and any concern that's brought up that is deeply demonstrative of the church not adding up somehow gets removed in your in your in your reasoning in the path that you create here but but bill if there is no true answer to if mormonism is what it claims to be if there is no yeah. reality by which we can judge that then it is all just myth and it doesn't matter and it doesn't it, it, there is no there is no truth at all like to say that there's no objective truth is to sink into a nihilistic hole that you can't I'm not, escape. I'm not from. A stuck in a nihilistic hole and I so I disagree with you. But and that's that's my whole point. I agree. I don't think that you do. I think that you simply need to amend your your statement about the existence of truth because you do believe in truth. You act like you believe in truth. Your behavior shows this, and and that's fine. We can because have because of debate. the myths that I choose to believe. I I, I do act as the again. Jordan, you, you mentioned Jordan Peterson earlier. Uh -huh. Jordan Peterson doesn't go on the record saying if he believes in God or not. He stays away from it. Um, I think I think most folks can sort of sense from him that what he's saying is. You know, the evidence doesn't really lead me there, but I know that my life is better if I choose to act as though I believe in God. And he uses that phrase, I act as though. I don't know, you know, I'm not going to answer here whether I do or I don't. Um, you're creating a way to talk about this topic that at the end of the day, all roads are going to lead back to Mormonism being true. And I know you're saying like, no, like we can start at this level one and Mormonism I, I mean, doesn't have to even come into play. You could have a conversation that, that leads to some other form of Christianity. You could lead, have a conversation that leads to deism <clears throat> or Islam, or I, I yeah. even believe, I even believe like what you are saying, you can have a conversation that leads you to secular humanism, right? But that is predicated on that there is a better or worse option amongst this map that exists of belief. And I'm always asking people, you know, there's that question, you know, well, where will you go? Well, it's sort of like, here's the map because there, there are certain categories. There are only so many categories of belief. People have been thinking about this for a oh, long no. time. Oh no, it's limitless. No, 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 no. That's that's well, not well, true. In, in the granularity, it's true. But like, either a worldview posits the existence of something that we could say is God, or it does, or it says that such an entity does not exist. The, oh, it's no, no, a no. binary I break. I disagree. I could imagine other scenarios that maybe you haven't even considered. Well, what's what's a scenario that is? Neither there is a God and nor is it there, nor atheistic, nor theistic, or, or, or I would say that doesn't have a God or, ha I mean, it seems like those are yeah. the only two options. I, I disagree. So I'll give you an example. Um, and again, we're getting lost in the weeds here. I would, I'll give the example, but I would much yeah, rather right. spend the time trying to understand the actual people, what they say is going on in a faith crisis and the actual experts who have studied this say about what's going on in faith crisis Those, because because uh, they have the authority to speak authoritatively on they on have the more experience in the topic than you do and that makes them an authority correct no that, that would no that would be a that would be an authority fallacy but we ought to at least 
rather than just focus on what Jacob Hansen's presenting, we ought to give room for all the experts to say something and then allow the people in the audience who listen to this to be able to make judgment calls about what sounds more accurate about what's happening than, than, than the guy who says, I'm LDS. At the end of the day, I know that my path is the ultimate best path and hence all roads lead to Rome. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Okay. So my theory, so just one idea to throw out of how there could be both a God and not a God. Um, imagine, for instance, there's a planet way out there that is a million years in front of us in terms of evolution, a billion years in front of us in terms of evolution. Whatever they are, it's completely different. Maybe they wanted to do a science experiment. Maybe they took some things to begin life and they put it on a ship and they sailed it halfway across the universe, found planet Earth and planted that. And now 13.7 billion years ago, of course, there's the Big Bang, whatever it is, 4.8 billion years ago, planet Earth begins to form and develop life on it. And that life begins. Now, whoever those people are off on their far planet, they are much more advanced than us. To some degree, they would appear sort of godlike to us. They've started life. They are the originators of life on this planet. So from that perspective, they also could be seen as God. And yet, in a rational point of view, just because they had the head start doesn't give them the ability to actually be God. And when you limit God down to being three things, most uh, faith systems do this. They say that God is omnipotent, all-powerful. He is omnipresent, all-present. And he is omniscient, all-knowing. And I don't need a conscious being to do that because everything that is, again, if 13 point something billion years ago, the Big Bang started and everything outflowed from that, then everything that's everywhere is that creative force in the beginning, no consciousness at all. And it is all-knowing because everything that is known is known by it. We are it. The frogs are it. The whatever other life on any other planet is it. It's all present. It's everywhere. Uh, and it's all powerful because everything that's been done has been done by it. And so I can come up with ideas where I don't need God exactly, but it's not God exactly. Um, so if I go back to... But in, but in this scenario that you, you just yeah. used, there is no God in the sense of uh, uh, an intelligent agent behind the universe. No, but if it's the aliens who planted life here, it is. No, those, those those aliens would not fit the description of, of what we've defined as God. Is that correct? They wouldn't fit that. But again, who creates that description? That's also a myth to say these are the these are the labels and uh, this is the litmus test well, by that, which that, we define God. That's fine. God. But 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 this thing X that we're describing, however yeah. we want to define X, mathematically you could say X exists or X does not exist. Now we we'd have to figure out what x what x is just based on what we're talking about and how and we x define could our be term. lots of things and but, but, x may not fit into the, the I'm, boundaries I'm just, that you created. Well, and that's fine. That's why it's x. It's it's some undefined. of the boundaries but, may be unimaginable. But according to to logic and reason, it's logical that x exists or x does not exist. There's no other possibility besides those two possibilities. Something cannot both exist and not exist. So if we're going to posit x as physics might uh, uh, physics might argue with you. The whole idea of like particles and waves, for instance, how whether something is one thing when you don't observe it and it's another when you do. I, I'm not I'm not willing to get on board with your statement there. Fair enough. Can I? Yeah, right, yeah, go ahead. So let me go ahead. Yeah. So John Pauline uh, is a minister. I actually have a slide that has his credentials on. Let me pull it up here. 
professor of New Testament interpretation at the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary at Andrews University, spent over two decades. He frames it in a religious uh, language. But here's what John Pauline says about the dark night of the soul. And by the way, you mentioned earlier the dark night of the soul. And you you talked about it as if people get stuck here. And, and no doubt, certainly some people do. But most people, I don't think, get stuck here. The dark night of the soul is at the precipice of cognitive dissonance. When you are stuck between two choices, often in this situation, it's stuck between the religion of your childhood, the thing you feel loyalty to, the thing you believe is all true, and the evidence that you're getting that such isn't the case. And he says, at the very height of spiritual success, something tends to happen that we least expect, usually between the ages of 30 and 50. When followers are increasing, people are feeling blessed, funds are flowing in to support the ministry, and awards are being given, comes a very unwelcome guest. It's a personal crisis many have called the dark night of the soul. Past certainties suddenly become inadequate. We call into question everything we have ever believed in everything we have ever done. We feel like failures, like we can't do anything right. We are humbled. Our world caves in. Our faith, which sustained us so powerfully up until this point, doesn't seem to work anymore. All of our answers are replaced with questions. God either vanishes from view or breaks out of the comfortable box we held him in. We hit bottom. We reach the end of our rope. We hit the wall and can seem to go no further on the spiritual journey. We have saved others, but ourselves we cannot save. We feel completely alone and abandoned by God. As one person put it, just when I got it all together, I forgot where I put it. And I'm just going to note, and, and and by the way, I I totally respect folks who know the issues and stay, and I know that you're aware of the issues. And again, I think that, I think there's ground to be given there. And I think that ground to be given has repercussions. I'll, and again, I don't want to make this personal. I don't, I don't know your siblings and I'm just using it as an example. Your siblings, at least some of them, I'm guessing had a really serious faith crisis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. absolutely. And they, they did the hard work to try to put it back together. They a wanted more. A, a few of them were listeners to your podcast, by the way. Sweet. <laughs> so they put in the hard work to try to make it work. I, for instance, wanted nothing more than Mormonism to be true. I really did. It wasn't that I cast off my my world framing for a different framing and then I deconstructed Mormonism. I deconstructed Mormonism and then I developed a, a different framing because it seemed more reasonable and rational to me. So as I investigated Mormonism and as your siblings investigated Mormonism, they they arrived at things don't add up. And it's not just a few little things. It's not like we can go like prophets are fallible um, and that explains it away. It's that if I'm going to take my inner authority, and I'm going to supplant it with something outside of myself, I need to have the evidence that that outside of myself thing comes up with better results than I do. And what I think most people who have a faith crisis and end up leaving the church, and, and by the way, I think I think most people who have a significant faith crisis, and I don't have data, nor would you have it to prove the opposite, but I believe that most people who have a significant faith crisis look at the issues deeply end up out and very few of them come back. And at least recognizing that the majority of people in terms of how their brain tells them rational thinking works, that seems to indicate not that they're right or wrong, but that a a significant majority of them seem to recognize inside them that rational thinking means that the church isn't true and they have to step away. And 
when I look at uh, whether it's your family, whether I look at all the folks that I've encountered who have uh, lost their belief in Mormonism, when they realize it doesn't work anymore, it the dark night of the soul is horrible. They they're up crying. They're they're uh, having sort of emotional breakdowns. They they uh, spend every waking moment trying to read everything and to figure it out. And when they go to read, they find more problems. They go into Fair Mormon and they see that the three problems they had, which are serious, not only are serious, but now there's a thousand other problems right behind it. And I think the best way we can respect faith crises and what's happening is to recognize that this, uh, if I go back to that map, um, this idea of develop, uh, develop faith development happening in this way or cognitive development happening this way is the human experience. And that when humans go on this journey, whether they were Mormons, Methodist, Amish, Christians at all, or some other world religion, whether they were Vikings who believed in Thor and Zeus, it seems as though the normal human trajectory uh, collectively, is to learn that the stories you grew up with aren't true, and they might and likely are even absurd, and that um, and that no matter how bad you wanted them to be true, and no matter how much good they might add to your life or you think they added to your life, that at some point you decide that you want to be honest to truth and not pretend anymore. And so people let it go. And the moment they let it go, because Mormonism makes it tough, in other words— And and, uh, and you, you said to, to be that these things to be true, but again— Yeah, you're, you're in philosophy, and, and I don't—that's not where okay, I'm going to— Okay, that's fine. That's fine. I'll, 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 that. I'll go back Please. to it. Go ahead. Um, just because you want something—again, I loved Santa Claus being true. It wasn't. And I had to deal with the repercussions of that. And it hurt for whatever, a week, a month, six months, whatever it was, the very next Christmas going like, man, there's no sand anymore. And yet somehow I still pass the myth on to my kids, right? Like we all, we're all playing these games with stories. At the end of the day, whatever, and here's what I was trying to say, that Mormonism does this thing where when you lose your faith, you've already done the system's job of inoculating your children so that they feel a deep loyalty to the system, so that when you deconstruct it and step away, the system has taught your kids to see you as something less than something tarnished that they need to keep some sort of force field up against. And um, we ought to recognize that not only are faith crises on their own extremely difficult, but in systems like Mormonism, they are made even more difficult because the risk of losing your marriage or the relationships to your family, friends, brothers, and sisters becomes really real. Like I remember thinking I had a 50, if I told my wife I was having a crisis, that there was a 50% chance she would leave me just because of that reason. So do and, you think it's, do you think it's wise to deconstruct people's faith if their marriages might fall apart? Um, I think it's wise to give people truth and information and let people make the best decisions they can. Even again, if that you can leads, play the, even if that, even if that leads to bad outcomes, even if it leads to suicide and depression and all that kind of stuff. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, you're, you're isolating, you're isolating one 
thing and I'm not, away and, and, from and just, all the just, others. And just, you know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you. Yeah. I actually am a believer that Wait. people need to be told, told the truth because I believe the truth exists, one. And two, I believe it's worth knowing. And so yeah. I'm not a pure pragmatist when it comes yeah. to the truth. Even if it's not true, it's even if the church isn't true, you would agree that truth is worth knowing. Yes. Okay. Then I don't want you to fight me on it because we agree. So you can't play it both ways. And you've been doing that constantly in this conversation where you want to hold on to. And, and the other thing too, in these conversations, I'm more than happy to tell you exactly what I think and feel. Um, some of it may be uh, contradictory to itself because again, I recognize that this is all chaos. We're building myth. We're trying to make meaning. I would like as the conversation goes forward from episode to episode or, or session to session, I'd really like for you to also share what you really think and not, not hold back. And so when you say you agree with me, but then you also want to push against the fact that I'm stating it, you're playing it both ways. And I, and I feel like that's what, really unfair. Uh, is there something in particular you're referring to um, right now? The thing you just said, you said you agree that people deserve truth. Now, when I say people deserve truth, you want to make that to the audience. You want to per, uh, portray that as something uh, maybe true, maybe not. Let's talk about outcome. Let's just stick with it. Like truth, you think truth matters in terms of people should have access to information and be able to make the best decisions without any manipulation for their lives. Yeah, I think that people should, I think people yeah. should have the truth. And I think that, and I think maybe in the subject, if we want to talk about a potential subject for the next episode, would be on the subject of of truth and how we can know it, or or what the nature of truth is. Yeah, I think that might be an interesting one. You but, also agree that people should have truth, even if it hurts. Yeah. Okay. Now I I will caveat that though, right? So there, this is a is a is a tricky topic, and I'll I'll full on admit that I'm still trying to sort it out myself, right? Because I believe in. For instance, there's the classic problem of your wife asks you if she looks fat in that dress and you know she's dealing with really severe body issues and depression. Do you give the brutal truth or do you or or do you realize that truth given without context can actually be harmful? And the context in this case with my wife is that she truly is beautiful, she's loved, she's valuable, all that kind of stuff. And so if I give her the hard truth about my opinion that she doesn't look good in that dress, I don't, it may have bad consequences. So I may omit the truth for, because that person isn't ready to process that information because they don't have the full context or understanding to be able to, to handle it. It's, they don't have the full story as it were. And until you have the full story, certain aspects of a story, if given in isolation can irk you out. Like my wife feeling terrible about herself because she doesn't realize that I think that she's beautiful and she's valuable no matter what. Right. So it's a complicated topic, but who gets yes. to determine who gets to determine when you're honest with somebody and when you're not each who one created us. that. Well, well, it's not dishonest to decide that certain information needs to be understood before other information needs to be understood. Right. Because you as can, long can, you as, can confuse yeah. someone. Like if I went up to a five-year-old and I began to talk to them about trigonometry, 
they might freak out and think I'm crazy because they haven't done, they don't understand the other things that actually make this, this uh, complex equation make sense. Right. Yeah. So my, my, information my point though needs is that to you're built line upon line. Otherwise yeah. it, and, and we all, ha we all do this. We yeah. All it's subjective to... though. It's, it's very subjective. Yes. But I would say that there is an objective standard by which we can tell if what yeah. we're doing is good or bad. Yeah. So when it comes to faith crises, I think that there is so much going on and there's so much pain and hurt. There's so much risk on both sides that I think the best thing we can do is to just be soft and honest with people and give them the best information to make decisions in their life. And, and, um, and the and, and on the relationship side of it, Bill, I, I agree with, I think there's a, there's a point of convergence here. Okay? I wouldn't want somebody holding back that, for instance, I wouldn't want my wife. I wouldn't want somebody holding back information that my wife's cheating on my, on me because I'm going to suffer from it. Um, yeah. right. People deserve honesty and they deserve the full truth. And they don't deserve whitewash statements or simplified narratives that are avoidant of, especially when the motive is to protect oneself for why one doesn't share information. Yeah. And, and yeah. what I would say when it comes to faith crisis, cause I think something that I think where we could probably converge on something that I think we'll agree on is that a faith crisis is a very real, painful, disorienting thing for the people that are going through it. And we need to be very careful, uh, and, and, and there are Latter-day Saints who do this wrong, that they that they think, oh, they just want to sin or whatever. No, there are legitimate, real faith crises that people experience. They're painful. They're disorienting. And my thing is, is if we want to help those people, I think the way that you do it is you help them at the level that they're at, right? Usually this is at level one of the conversation, right? To help them to find things that they can believe in, right? Because at some point, the way you the way you come out of a faith crisis and, and reach some level of stability is to find something that you can believe in, something you can build your life and behavior around. And that's the big question. Where are you going to go that will provide that? Now, I may disagree with where people go, but I, I do believe that I would rather my siblings come to have some sort of a belief in some kind of a secular humanism than to be in the misery of nihilism that can potentially lead them to suicide where they don't even think life is worth it at all or do terrible nihilistic things to other human beings. And so I think there needs to be an effort, not only if you want to deconstruct stuff, every building needs a remodel, right? Like sometimes you got to tear out old plumbing, but the reality is you still have to have a roof over your head. Otherwise you'll die. And so you need to help people if they've deconstructed the entire building. It's like, okay, we need to start to rebuild something. And when they are deconstructing, make sure that they're taking out things that are worth taking out and not deconstructing things that are essential to holding up the foundations of the building because they're bad consequences if you go about uh, a remodel recklessly and start tearing down everything at once. And there also is risk if you stay in unhealthy systems and continue to subject yourself to what goes on there as well. 
I agree. And, and, and that's, why, also that's why I believe depression that, and that's suicide why I that believe recon, that's why I believe that remodel is necessary. And that's why I describe what I've done as a remodel. I had to abandon assumptions. I had to change points of view, but I also recognize that I had to be careful that if the whole building falls down, as I go through this remodel, like we need to build something. Can right? one legitimately remodel by leaving the LDS church? I believe that a person can come up with a coherent worldview that grants them the ability to live uh, a, a, a happy life without Mormonism, without the church. However, I believe that the church takes you to another level of being. I, I, we would frame it as from, from a telestial level of existence, people can do that, but we are here to try and help people progress to the highest level possible. If we inter see again, you haven't, I, I understand you said in the beginning, I haven't been through a faith crisis, but I have had to change my assumptions. I've had to, I've had to be Mormon differently. Mm -hmm. um, the experience I have with people who have actually been through significant faith crises is that the dark night of the soul is horrific, but that once they make peace with that and, and, and I'm not, it's a whole other conversation to go like, hey, the church made this person's wife feel like they had to divorce them. And now you look at all the horrible things that came from that. We'd have to go through all of that to measure it. But my point being is that when we take people who have been through significant faith crises, they've deconstructed whatever system they came from. They, they sat in the dark night of the soul for a little while trying to refigure out their identity. That once they do... I'm not, I'm not convinced that there's a significant chunk of them that are miserable, any more miserable than the significant chunk that are inside the system that they left. And your data you shared earlier is a, is a different point. It's not taking folks who believed all feet in in a system, deconstructed it in a thorough way, and then reconstructed some sort of identity outside of that system. When I have reached out to those people and asked them, they report a high level of happiness. Again, 92, 93% say they are as happy or happier. And the as happy was about 8% of that. And again, I'll say, I don't trust that data completely, but I also don't trust Mormons repeating their uh, reporting their happiness completely either. And I think there are good reasons to doubt the data on both sides. Um, but at the end of the day, I want to let people tell their own story. And rather than pretend to be an expert, I, I know my faith crisis, and I know where others have told me that you, you spoke in ways that resonated with what my journey looked like. I would say that our best bet to get at the bottom of what's going on is to, one, not to have an appeal to authority per se, but we ought to at least put the information of the experts on the table. So Faith Beyond Belief by Margaret Placentra Johnson, The Critical Journey by Robert Gulich and Janet Hagberg. Faith Shift by Kathy Escobar and Navigating a Mormon Faith Crisis by Thomas McConkie, who appeals to believers, but doesn't exactly fit in the box that church leaders would be very thrilled with. And I think when folks spend time understanding what the experts say and what the people who have been through it report, it becomes clear that this has nothing to do with Mormonism other than Mormonism's truth claims don't hold up for these folks in the same way that the folks who deconstruct Scientology or Jehovah's Witnesses find that those truth claims also don't hold up. Rather, a major life event is happening where people are feeling uh, 
a, a terrible amount of turmoil and that's the dark night of the soul. And we ought to help those folks not nudge them back into the system they came from, because that only works if you get them going into the system you're in. If I'm pointing them towards back into Scientology, you would go, that's unhealthy. If I point them back into Jehovah's Witnesses, you would go, I'm not sure I'm a fan of that. It only I, works I just, when it's just, your system. Just, I I look at it in levels of being and levels of, of development, let's say, <laughs> spiritual and in all aspects. Um, and I believe that there are there are various systems that lead people to higher or lower levels of of being. I believe yeah. that kind of the nihilistic hole is kind of that's about as bad as it gets. That's where you're stuck in the dark night of the soul and you can't get out and you're just miserable. And I think that there are the path out of that is truth because there is truth. And as we align ourselves with the truth, we then move up. And I believe that there are various systems of belief. Some are better or worse than others based on how closely they align with moral truth, with the order of being that produces the highest level of not only well-being for the individual, but for all people. And not only for now for 80 years in this life, but throughout an eternal time scale. And so yeah. that's kind of the way that I that I frame it. Yeah. And, and and so I for those who are struggling with their faith. My thing is, is I want to try and push people as far as they're willing to go up. If if that means secular humanism is as far as you can get, I may wish that you'd move f farther than that. But boy, I'm happy that you're at least not in nihilism, right? Because I love you. Nihilism occurs inside religion too, by the way. What I mean by that is if you ask gay kids inside the LDS church, uh, they're also feeling nihilistic. They also feel like that nothing means anything and all and all is hopeless and, and they're sent. So it's... It's not but, fair. You're posing it as if everyone who exits church and deconstructs ends up nihilistic. But the but the, but the religious the religious effect. In fact, I on, think very few people do. The religious effect on suicide. Well, you're right. Very few do because they bounce out of nihilism pretty quick because it's miserable, and so they go and find new things to believe in. And, and so and somehow that I know, but there's something about your framing that still requires Mormonism to be the ultimate truth, and you seem to have a blind spot. You seem to not recognize what faith crises are. Like if Mormonism didn't exist, faith crises would still be happening all across the world. And they have nothing to do with Mormonism, zilch, other than no, Mormonism's I, I, one I more fully, system. I fully, I fully recognize that. That's what I was yeah, saying. And but that's you, why but I you're creating to, a path. I wanted to boil this, I wanted to boil yeah. this down to where we can connect, which is that we're human beings ultimately, and we exist in a reality and you know, what are we to make of all of what we are and, and where we where we go from here? And Mormonism is a particular form of Christianity, which is a particular form of theism. Um, and so I, I wouldn't say the, the the broader idea here is that and my, my main point in this whole thing that I want to get across to people is that a faith crisis is when the whole thing gets deconstructed. And and as you go through the process of deconstructing, you can't stay in deconstruction mode. You need to reconstruct something. And I frankly am very interested in what people construct because I want to see, is it stronger than what I have, right? Is it, is it stronger and better? Is, is atheism stronger than theism? Within theism, is Islam stronger than Christianity? Is secular Buddhism better than Mormonism? Yes, 100%.
I, I, and I want people to try and make those cases. I have arrived at the best description of the, the universe is that there is a God. I have arrived at the conclusion that among the available descriptions for God and narratives about God, the Christian narrative is the one that I find the most compelling. And then within the Christian story and narrative, the most compelling Christian uh, story that's out there about what Jesus Christ is, you know, what's he up to today is the narrative given by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, I'm now. where did I go wrong? Maybe I went wrong, like you would say, at the very beginning, <laughs> that there's a God, right? Like, so we can have that conversation. But these are separate conversations. And, and because what I want to see is, you know, is there a case to be made? Does someone have a more compelling argument than the ones that I've heard when it relates to atheism and theism, when it relates to specific narratives about God, and when it uh, relates to specific narratives about Christianity. And when I when I began to think of it in those terms, yes, I can find problems in the Joseph Smith story or whatever, things that make me doubt. But ultimately, I still go, but still, as a Christian, this is still the best that I've found. And so I don't need to have a, per I don't place my faith in that which is perfect, per se, the perfect narrative, let's say, because I don't think it exists. I place my faith in the things that I think are most likely to be true. And I think it is most likely to be true that there's a God. And I think that it is most likely true that that God, when considering that, that he interacts with the world. I'm a theist. And then out of that, I say, okay, this God interacting in the world, what's the most probable uh, evidence of God actually interacting with the world? Jesus Christ story is where I go. And then if I go, well, all right, I'm a Christian. What's the most probable kind of where did Christianity go from Jesus? This is the narrative that I that I have right now. And here's the thing: I could be wrong. Like, fine, but I want in to fact, understand statistically, why. You, in fact, statistically, you probably are wrong. Look at the collective view of the universe over billions of years, and you're in this little tiny group as an insider. Like, again, step outside of your own shoes for a moment. Isn't it most likely? Isn't it statistically insignificant the chance that you're actually right? There are many, many things that are true that are statistically not likely to be true. Yeah, but and, we don't believe them until but, but, we actually but, but, have them present themselves with you're right. evidence and, that and is that's, convincing. That's, you're right. And that's what I look at. So I go and, through the map and I start at the beginning and I say – is there a God? And that's, that's level one but this, conversation. This level, this kind of argumentation works with flat earths and, uh, it absolutely does. It fails at the very no, 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 first no. level. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the way in which you form an argument where you go, Mormonism is the most likely thing to be true is the same sort of mindset in mental gymnastics that the flat earther makes. It, in other words, you have your evidence and you're sure that your evidence is better than the evidence that the rest of the world is presenting. But the rest of the world is going. Mormonism is absurd. Then, 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 maybe, and the then, then, and the thing is, is but that's the thing is, is that start using at a the first. Tool. Start at the first level. The first level is at of, atheism. of the paradigm you created. What I'm saying is of the binary that God exists or God does not exist. And that's the first conversation we have. And Bill, you and I, if we wanted to have a productive conversation, would have to have a conversation at that level because that's where we diverge. Actually, we diverge no. even further than that. We diverge at the very notion that there's there's even objective truth at all. And yeah. so and so 
my whole thing is, is that you have to start at the beginning of, a, you have to go to the very foundations of belief at all. If you're in a faith crisis and start to build from there, you've deconstructed down to the level to where you're saying there is no, even any objective truth. And so if we were going to have, if, if I want to have a conversation with you, that's the place where we have the conversation because you're never going to arrive at the conclusion of Mormonism based on, uh, you know, unless you go through that logical chain. And so I don't, no, Mormonism doesn't require any logical chain to arrive at Mormonism. Mormonism says, read a book, pray about it, trust your feelings. And if your feelings say it's true, get in the waters and let's go. Sure, it does. It, 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 well, I'll put it this way. It, it does have that sort of a narrative once a person believes that there's a God and that they believe in the Jesus Christ of the New Testament. Because remember, to have a prayer, you have to presuppose that there's a God that you actually are praying to. And to pray in the name of Jesus Christ is to presuppose that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And then you're going to presuppose if you have that, those premises built, you're going to believe that there is actually a Holy Spirit of God that can manifest the truth unto you things, which is what Jesus taught. And so it's not crazy to ask people to who are Christians to pray to God to, you know, and, and that God will reveal something to them. That's not irrational at all. Once you accept those presuppositions, um, those, those premises for the argument, because uh, Bill, if Jesus Christ yeah. actually exists, you're saying that's it, rational. I, I can't, I have to disagree with you. It is completely irrational to ask somebody to study a religious system, to read material in it, to pray about it, and then to trust some internal, what feels like spiritual experience to know whether that system is actually right. Yes, from your perspective, because you reject no, 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 no. God exists. Hold on a minute. That's not right. So if God this, exists and Jesus is the Christ, then no. that isn't irrational to, to That process God to works outside of Mormonism in systems that you would say are demonstrably false. For if, instance, I could play a video. Let's just use the FLDS, for instance. Uh -huh. An FLDS person goes about getting their testimony the exact same way that a Mormon, a Latter-day Saint, goes about getting their testimony. Okay. They have the exact same sorts of feelings and experiences. By the uh -huh. way, we should, for session three, we should talk about how a testimony, what it is and how one gets it. Yeah, that's fine. Um, the FLDS engage Mormonism getting a testimony in the exact same way that a Latter-day Saint does. And they come up with answers of certainty in the exact same way that you do. And you know, from a Mormon perspective, their answer isn't true. And we can find some loophole by going like, well, they're coming, it's, it's degrees of truth and God's bringing them along. But the moment you say that, if you do, the moment you say that, you're also admitting that maybe you're the one who has a ways to go and you're the one being brought along. There's no way to discern the testimony of the FLDS person as true or false versus your testimony as true or false. Hence, it becomes a completely subjective experience for every human being to deem whether their spiritual experiences in heaven's gate or Scientology or uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. And we already yeah. know that religious systems manipulate people, Scientology with their e-meters, for instance, into having experiences where they feel like something true is being given, but in reality, they're being manipulated to believe in a specific system. And because you're on the inside, you're going to, again, just a flat truth, not about you being a Mormon, about any human being inside their system that believes it, you're going to struggle to sense that the way in which you arrive at truth isn't really any different 
than the smartest of people that believe in other systems. And are you inside of a system? Amen. Amen. Uh, totally. And that's fine. And I, here's the thing. I actually think this is a great probably place to sort of wrap this one up because I think we're previewing yeah. what our next conversation will be. Please, I think, yeah, say whatever. I, I, think, I think that that is a great segue to talking about the nature of of testimony and what we mean by it in the church. Yeah, please. Because that's a very fundamental part of the whole conversation and different groups that have similar, you know, spiritual yep. experiences, things like that. I think that'd be a great topic for. Why for don't you one. give uh, a closing comments, thoughts you want to share? Let me, and then we'll, we'll cut this one off. Yeah. So I, I guess uh, what to, unless to, you want me to go first, I think you went first last time. I'm happy to go last, but it feels like going last all the time gives that person the last word. Oh no, that's fine. I'll, I'll give you the last word. I'm not worried okay. about that. Um, especially, yeah. So my basic contention in this, just to kind of sum things up is that first of all, faith crisis is a very real thing. It's very difficult for people when the building comes tumbling down, it's, it's really hard. And if we want to help people, we need to help them to reconstruct. And one of the reasons that I, um, and maybe people aren't in a position to that. I don't think people should rush in to try and help people reconstruct their belief. But at some point, people need to begin to reconstruct their belief system. And I think at that point, you begin to have the conversations um, uh, about, not about what you don't believe. I'm very curious with people about what they do believe. Um, and, I, and I go through that, that map that I had that, that essentially is my way of saying, look, Let's go through this and see where do we diverge and why and have interesting conversations about it. You don't need to be all crazy and, you know, I think that there's a very interesting conversation to have. There's a lots of very interesting resources on all of these questions and they go far beyond Mormonism. In fact, that's kind of my point here. The point is that this isn't really a Mormon thing per se. What's going on is that people are deconstructing Christianity they're deconstructing theism. They're deconstructing morality. They're deconstructing truth. And you start to find out where you're really lost and you're asking yourself, what am I and what the heck is this all about? And frankly, if a person's at that level, if they're at level one, if they're at the bottom of the conversation, that's fine. That's a great place to begin having conversations. Um, and and, there, and there's a lot of interesting stuff that's been said about that way outside of the Latter-day Saint tradition. Um, some of these questions go back to some of the oldest philosophers of all time. And I think people should take the time to understand that and to try and reconstruct their belief system. Uh, and not, it, not with the presupposition that it's going to arrive at Mormonism per se, but I also think people shouldn't be biased against it. They need to reconstruct so that they can get their bearings avoid nihilism and find psychological stability again. And that's, uh, that's kind of what I sum this up at least. <laughs> the idea that, um, so I agree that we should find ways to help people have the healthiest, happiest, best well-being outcomes, but it is true that being happy about a belief or being comfortable in a belief has nothing to do with whether the belief is true. When one grows up in a religious system, that religious system is doing everything it can to shape your beliefs and your mindset so that you think that system is the one true system. And if something inside your gut is telling you that something's not right here, 
Notice all the mechanisms in your system that get you to push that away, to not question, to not doubt, and to realize consciously or subconsciously the risks that are there if you begin to deconstruct. Will your wife stay in the marriage? Will your kids still talk to you? Uh, these are problems. These are questions and problems that Latter-day Saints who are beginning to have doubts and deconstructing are, are not just thinking about. They are weighed down with. And faith crises, they're, they're hard. They're difficult. I remember nights of crying. I remember not sleeping because I would sit up on the computer all night and, and I would be looking at things like the book of Abraham or what happened with the book of Moses or how did Joseph Smith translate the book of Mormon? What's going on with Joseph Smith's polygamy? And it came to the point where I kept wanting Mormonism to be true. Just as much as the Scientologist who starts to deconstruct wants Scientology to be true, or the Jehovah's Witness wants the Jehovah's Witness faith to be true. As much as an FLDS person wants that branch of Mormonism to be true. But systems are constantly making it harder for you to cleanly step away. There are mechanisms of shame. There are mechanisms of fear. There are mechanisms of manipulation and coercion. And when you recognize all the pressure that is on a person inside a high-demand fundamentalist religion to continue to believe and to not push back, what I learned a long time ago is by the time you see a Latter-day Saint in your building saying something about having doubts, he already has disbeliefs, but it's not safe to say disbeliefs. And it wasn't safe to say doubts when he had them. And so folks are constantly ahead of the deconstruction more so than what they're actually posing publicly because they are deeply scared of the risk that are there for them to take apart who they are, their identity, and their relationships, and their belief system. And just as Jacob, no offense, Jacob, just as you today have tried to, in some level, warn people of the scary things that are out there if they deconstruct. My reality has been that people who, um, in a thorough way, deconstruct the system they came from, the far significant majority of folks do so in a healthy way where they look back and go, Mormonism was way unhealthier than I thought it was. Same for the other systems that people came out of. It was way less helpful than I thought it was, and I was much better off chasing down truth and trying to put things back together with a stronger sense of what reality really is. And I would want every single person, I wouldn't want to speak for them and decide whether that process is good or not. I'd rather put the information on the table and let people make their own decisions about what is true and what isn't. And then to trust people to make the best decisions, as long as they've got the information, to trust people to make the best decisions for their life. And I'm super cool whether you stay or whether you go. All right. Well, okay. thank you, Bill. Okay. Thank you, Jacob. Have an awesome day. And uh, hopefully I'll see you for the next one. All righty. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.